Hello everyone, welcome to All the Film Things. I'm your host Elizabeth, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review or a rating. Also check out the All the Film Things Instagram for updates and more film things. The Oscars countdown is coming to a close. We are at the last film, my favorite film of the year, Sammy's third favorite, (laughs) the latest masterpiece by Christopher Nolan, Oppenheimer. Joining me today is my friend and writer-director, Sammy Alcamel. He is back after the 2023 in film episode. Thank you for joining me today, Sammy. Glad to be here as always. So, this is quite a tremendous film. You've seen it five times. Mm -hmm. I've seen it four times. Mm -hmm. I wish I could have seen it two more times. But it is a tremendous film, nonstop information. This is one... To fully unpack, you really got to take your time. I really should have done a whole like Tenet or Inception one day deep dive. I did it just because I tried to have a little bit, a few more watches in me before I do that. So I'm really familiar with the story. But I rewatched Oppenheimer for this. And as you know, I don't feel prepared. You think I am because we're of the similar analytical nature and massive Nolan fans that we can handle this at this point. So... I think we do. Okay. (laughs) So when we did the 2023 in film episode, this wasn't your number one favorite film of the year, but you said it was the best film of the year. Now that you've seen a few more films, is it still safe to say that this is still the best film of 2023? Yeah, I mean, I haven't really, like, since I was here for the Oscars episode, I haven't really seen many more of the 2023 films that I had wanted to. I mean, I saw The Iron Claw and I saw Saltburn, and I wouldn't say either of those are better than Oppenheimer's. So, I mean... No, I don't think so. And yeah, I mean, it is probably the best made movie that year. But, you know, if you were to listen to that Oscars episode, you know, like what goes into my lists are like a mix of, you know, technically best and like personal favorite because you always have to have a little bit of bias in there. But yeah, it is like technically like incredible from a filmmaking standpoint. I mean, I've absorbed like everything there is to absorb about this movie. I mean, in front of me, I have my copy of the movie and I have a little a copy of the script and a copy of American Prometheus. And I've watched on the home release, which is why the home release is so important and so special. I've watched the special features disc of this movie. And it's like the special featurette, which you can watch on YouTube. You don't have to own this movie to watch it. But, but we encourage physical media. So, of course. Yeah, yeah of course. I, I shouldn't have said that. Yes, strike that from the damn record. Yeah, no, the special. <laughs> Didn't you just make an episode on why we should keep physical Yeah, right. Go watch that, by the way. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll plug that later. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, okay. So, what I was saying is sorry the special featurette disc like kind of shows you what the passion of filmmaking can achieve you know in certain like conditions i mean there's a segment on here that shows for the white house set you know for the white house scene do you know this for the white house scene that lasted like a minute in the movie they had to spend days and days and days building that set because at the last second like the set designer was like there was some technical difficulty and had to back out and couldn't do like they were dead in the water and had a timeline to achieve and didn't out have a white house set for the scene they just i don't know no, like chris and emma were just like guys we just like have to do this like we have to make it happen gary oldman okay. is coming yeah exactly like gary oldman is coming like this is the only time he can make it they show on this disc like a time lapse of them just over the next few days building a white house set out of like nothing wow which in the movie is just a background for like a minute. Most of it is out of focus anyway. Like most of that shit is out of focus anyway. They could have easily done that in a green screen. No one never would have done that. No, my no one would do that. Like, my point is that 
this is the best made movie of the year and one of the best made movies of like the past several years because of its approach to filmmaking. Something we're probably going to dive into a lot later, but I just, you know, that's something that has to be stated out front. Like, that's why it's the best made movie. And that scene that you're referring to in the White House is regarded as one of the best scenes in the film. It's tough because so many people will point to the Trinity test and then followed by the White House scene with Truman. Those two scenes. His speech in the cabin is probably the best scene in the whole movie, I think. His, like, waking nightmare. The way that scene is edited, the way that scene is composed, like, in the script, the way that scene is even written like reading the script i love 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 being able to read the script because especially with the montages and especially the you've read the script by now or no if i had more time i would have edited and annotated the pdf version of the script online i wish i could have gone through it but you're so lucky you have the screenplay book right in front of you i do and it's just perfect because you see i mean obviously what makes that scene incredible is the way it's edited i would say in the way that it's like it's not really a montage but i mean it's i'm trying to find it but i can't experimental they're playing with practical effects with that background which we talked a little bit about in the 2023 in film episode but how they achieved that with the background moving and the sound cutting out mm-hmm. i mean and in the script it literally says cheers 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 but no sound there's ways that this script kind of changes through production and there's things that were in the movie that were not in the script moments that were in the script that were not in the movie but certain things you see you can tell were in nolan's mind from like the start he knew exactly how he wanted the scene to play out like i think that scene is probably one of the best scenes in nolan's like entire filmography bear in mind like you go from the fade out of the trinity test sequence to this abrupt cut like right into oppenheimer like staring at the bombs being carried away and that's like the beginning of this nightmare that culminates in that speech ends in him walking out and seeing some guy throwing up which is like referenced in this book i mean there's obviously things in i'm never gonna find it actually this book. there's no way yeah he's referring to american prometheus which he's almost done with but when i say almost done there's about 200 pages left it seems it's a giant book it's like a thousand something pages like 650 pages of like reading material probably the last 100 pages are like notes but are you enjoying it i love it yeah it gives a whole new I was saying before this episode started, it gives like a whole new level. It unlocks a whole new level of like perception for the film for me. And because there's so much that you see on screen now that you can just reference the book. I know you reference the book, but you can just think about the book and be like, wow, Nolan took like chapters and chapters of this book that went into extreme detail about Oppenheimer's entire life and periods of his life and just turned it into visual art. I mean, like the Can You Hear the Music montage is like a decade pretty much of oppenheimer's life just condensed into a one and a half minutes of like most beautiful music you've ever seen but another way of nolan portraying time in a very subtle how do i word this that montage along with a few other moments in the film like the classrooms the way time is structured like portrayed or flows flows is the perfect word you don't know how much time has elapsed in between and that can you hear the music sequence the subtleties and shifts through time, as you're saying, I can't believe it's a decade that they're showing. It's probably not a decade, it might be a little bit less, but I mean, that's the point is like, it's still, I don't know how to articulate this, like in a way that would capture the feeling of like having read the source material and watching this movie. I don't want to say, I, and I also don't want to make it sound like you have to, obviously like without the source, I saw this movie four times before I read American Prometheus and obviously it was still like hit me. But my point is just that, if you really have read like Nolan's inspiration for this movie, 
it does for me at least make me appreciate it a whole lot more mm-hmm. and all this to say is like the four times i'd seen this movie before reading the book because we the whole reason this whole started is because we were talking about that scene his speech in the cabin i didn't know how much obviously like the whole thing is like a waking nightmare for him so i figured that everything he was seeing was just his nightmare but then in the source material in the book in american prometheus it's documented that when he did give that like victory speech afterwards the mood amongst the crowd was just scattered i mean some people were throwing up some people were crying some people were making out behind the bleachers like people didn't know what to feel i mean this was a lot people were working for years and years and years on this bomb and it just went off and that scene i think just captures the tumultuous like just (sighs) untempered feeling of like what happens after you like change the world like he literally changed the world by doing this when the film first was released people were saying this is very much a horror film this sequence is so horror-like and as a horror film scaredy cat i was terrified going into that scene i was clutching my bag like i've never strangled something in my life i was so nervous during that trinity scene and that sequence and all those people who say that's a horror-like moment stop saying that because I mean, it's horrifying in tone. It's horrifying it tone. Feel horrible, like yes, it does have horror elements, but I wouldn't say horror. It is a horrifying story. It is a horrifying situation, and the way the film ends, it leaves you with a feeling that you described in our last episode. We did this dread. <laughs> yeah, it's like existential dread. And just bear in mind that the ending of that movie, like chronologically in the movie, that's before anything with the aec anything like that's before oppenheimer had even taken the job yet like remember that's when oppenheimer first came to visit straws mm-hmm. and you watch that scene and it's something i didn't even think about the first time watching the movie because of course the first time you watch a nolan movie you're more left with the feeling than the understanding I mean, it's more about how it makes you feel in that theater you have to digest it first and then you can analyze it a little bit later but then it just sinks in that it's like wait a minute after like this horrifying like existential ending of a film Oppenheimer literally just had to go back and be like, yeah, thanks, Straws, I'll take the job. From there, that's when, once you really understand it and it clicks, that that's the mentality that Oppenheimer was having this whole time he worked at the AEC. Once it clicks that that's his mentality, a lot of what follows makes sense and you see why he was just so opposed to the H-bomb. And that's kind of where I stopped reading in the book up until now, is like the beginning of his relationship with Straws, so I'm sure... Mm. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, things in the movie, honestly, were referenced to the book. Like, who knows? Maybe Straws did have a personal vendetta against Albert Einstein. Like, you know, at this point, based on how much of the book really was translated into the screen, like, so subtly and so well, I wouldn't be surprised if there were things about Straws that no one took straight from the book that may seem like just character quirks, you know? Because, again, I thought, like, all of that nightmare scene in the cabin was fake Oppenheimer looking at some dude throwing up. I was like, oh, that's for, you know, dramatic effect. But no, I mean, there were documentations that kind of did happen. So that's the thing, honestly. I mean, I think once I won't revisit this movie until I've hopefully finished this book and then I'll go watch it again because it'll make me appreciate it a lot more. Maybe Dr. Hill. I mean, the whole thing with Dr. Hill, I feel like that when I was watching that last night, I was in the back of my head. I was like, you know, now I wouldn't be surprised if maybe the scientists did at that time we're all collectively thinking like damn straws fucked over oppenheimer like we don't want him in office like yo dr hill you should go say the right thing and then maybe dr hill who knows maybe it also could just be nolan making that whole thing up but i'm not making it up i'm sure dr hill was historically documented as the one on trial but you know because in the movie he's talking about like it's my understanding of the collective agreement of the scientists in this nation to want 
Dr. Straw is complete, or not, completely you know, out, out of government. government. Yeah, exactly. And maybe that really is true. I don't know. I can't wait to finish the book, hopefully. And Hill and Teller were out. quite opposites in a way because a lot of Teller's mannerisms were honestly true also. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So Teller, he was originally loyal and got along with Oppenheimer. And then again, it's a three hour film. There's a lot to digest and I haven't done my one day analysis on it, but it seems like after the war, after the H bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that Teller wanted Oppenheimer to vocalize his support to continue his research. Mm -hmm. Because Oppenheimer couldn't help out of spite, Teller began to side with Strauss. And that's why at the hearing, the confirmation hearing for Strauss, he ultimately sided with Strauss. And then we see Hill, who, Rami Malek, Oscar winner. Does he say any words before that hearing scene? He, just, he like gives a pen and pad to Oppenheimer twice. Well, the first time Oppenheimer like knocks a pen down, and the second time Oppenheimer just like shoves him, and the whole fucking thing just falls down. <laughs> Amazing how, like, he... He's the perfect character. Yes. And at the end of the day, Oppenheimer, you know, he, as you said, he slammed this down. He did this. He's saying nothing. But in the end, he's the one who comes and helps Oppenheimer and re gets Strauss rejected from being in the cabinet. And that's the thing. I want to know how much of his character is, like, dramatized and how much is based in truth. Because, again, some of the stuff is true. Like, when they went to visit Stimson in the Red Room or whatever, mm -hmm. right before, there was Szilard and Dr. Hill. But that person was, isn't named in the book, but it's true. I mean, in American Prometheus, Szilard, like, did kind of ambush Oppenheimer in the hotel before leaving. He was like, dude, you're going. Like, tell them that we're concerned. Like, to sign this position, Oppenheimer's like, no, 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 man. The best I can do is just voice the concerns. And, you know, which he does try to do in the Red Room in that conference with Stimson. But there's also no documentation. There's also no historical record in here of, like, oh, some scientist pushed his pen and paper. I was being like, no, nothing like that. So, obviously, Dr. Hill's character is kind of, maybe fabricated to an extent, but I want to know how much, because the thing about reading the book to me is that this is probably what I mean by unlocked a new level of understanding, like getting into Oppenheimer's head. You know, the first four times of this movie, I judged Oppenheimer the way Nolan portrayed him, which is subjective. Nolan himself didn't take a side. Killian didn't take a side. Killian even in, in some recent speech was like, it's important. I don't judge my characters when I play them. I just play them. And you see that in the movie, but reading American Prometheus, that book doesn't necessarily take a side either, but it does hit you with literally like all the facts. And it helps me, it helped me really understand that Oppenheimer's morality was very questionable. He didn't take sides. You know, he couldn't stick to, why limit yourself to one dogma? Yeah. That's true. He didn't. He was intellectually interested in communism, but also was like, nah, he did have Buddha. And he was a womanizer. He did an affair with Ruth Tolman. There's so many scenes, actually, in that movie with him and Ruth that you kind of a little bit flies over here. Like, there's so many scenes where he's just kind of like... With Ruth? With Ruth, yeah. There was that rumor that, that was going around in the film that he and Ruth were having an affair. And they were. And they were. And they were. Yes. What? Yes. Oppenheimer was a womanizer. Alexa play Womanizer by Britney Spears. Here's also something where I mean about taking a few seconds of film time and spanning years of the book. Remember the very beginning when Roger Robb was like, and did you enjoy your time over there or something? And Oppenheimer was like, oh, no, no, I was homesick, troubled by visions of a fabric or whatever universe. That brief sequence, which is breathtaking and honestly and chilling, is what? Like not even a minute long. It's like 30 seconds, right? In the book, 
Oppenheimer did, and several chapters covered this. For a period of Oppenheimer's life, in college he was depressed, he was suicidal, he was acting in ways that his colleagues did say were like, this is erratic. Like Oppenheimer just had existential crises. He was going insane. He did think he was going to kill himself. It showed, the book shows letters and stuff that he wrote and would receive, and some of it is like, I'm feeling, that's what I mean, where it unlocks a whole new level of perception. Because watching that scene last night in this movie, I was like, yo, wait a minute. Like, I didn't realize this. Like, yeah, this few seconds, like, troubled by vision. I was like, at first, you know, I'm reading the line. I'm like, wow, cool line, Nolan. Like, but you just came out of your ass with this. But nope, this is based in fact. And I don't know, man. It makes it so much better. I don't even know how I got to this point. But what you're saying about him being depressed and suicidal abroad, as you're saying, it's a very quick, not even one minute. We see quick shots and we see him like in bed trembling. He's sad. Those emotions, the depression, the suicidal, that portrays in this one quick shot. Years. Holy. <laughs> Years. Nolan, I'm going to say this probably a million times. Nolan is a mastermind. It, just, it captures it perfectly. Nolan is, is writing the script and he's like, I'm not going to beat it. I can't beat him over the head with every single detail in this book. This is a three hour movie. I'm not doing a series. So he's like, okay, how would all this make me feel? And he just writes it and it comes out beautifully, man. I don't know. All this, I, I, I remember why I was saying all this now is because the film portrays Oppenheimer ambiguously because no one really truly knew. That's why you understand in the book, Oppenheimer himself was the only one who really knew how he felt. Remember when Teller's like, thinks like guru of the atom. No one knows what you believe. Do you? Because no one knew what Oppenheimer believed. Here's a man who on the exterior was somewhat, they even wrote this the day Probably one of the most memorable lines in the entire in American Prometheus so far is how people observed Oppenheimer behaving like in the minutes and hours following the Trinity test. Mm. He, was, he was described as a man walking with the gait of a man in control of his own destiny. Here's someone who has now dedicated his entire life to something that up until that point was just theory, was not real. This was just theory the math said that all this checks out theory only takes you know, so far but you cannot know until one of these blows up here's someone who just witnessed something that no one in the entire world has ever seen and he's the reason that people are seeing it now here's someone who changed the world and he knew that on some level obviously that gets to your head a little bit you know what i mean like not just in a dreadful way but obviously you feel a bit cool i don't know i i don't want to say like feel like a badass but you kind of do. I mean, he changed the world. And then immediately after that was the point where he was no longer in control. That's where the downward spiral begins in here. Once he's no longer in control, then he was like, he had a fabricated idea in his head. And I'm, this is all this is like, all this I'm telling you is like what I'm actually writing. This is me like speculating. This is from the book. Not to say like, oh, I know what I'm talking about, but I'm just saying like, this is, helps you appreciate how no one adapted all this, but Niels Bohr was a huge inspiration to Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer was always obsessed with Niels Bohr, and the scene in the film where Bohr comes to visit, which, by the way, is like pretty dramatic. It's a throwaway line where Bohr's like, oh, they helped me escape. Like the, Bohr was captured by the Nazis. Like, he was. Yeah, like Bohr was... Like, it was it, they had to it, get him out of Copenhagen. They got him out. In the movie, it's like five seconds. Oh, they got me out. I want you to continue what you're saying. Yeah. Just another line that stood out to me. 
He said it was chilling to see his former student Heisenberg working for the Nazis. Mm -hmm. That's another yeah. like, whew, what a line. But please continue what you were saying. Well, just the conversation that follows Rabor is like, I'll do what I can on the outside, but you're the one who gave them the power to. Obviously, that's a Nolan line right there. It's not something Borb said, but quintessential you know, Nolan. Yeah, that's a Nolan line, but it's kind of true. Bohr had come to visit. He did actually say, "Is it big enough?" The first thing Bohr said to Oppenheimer at the visit was. Is it big enough? So that is true. When they learn that the Germans have taken the wrong turn, is that also in the book? I think so, but I don't think it was like as celebratory of a moment because the tone of that conversation was moreover like pretty grim. There wasn't, I don't, I don't remember that. I'm, I'll be honest, that I don't remember 100%. I'm inclined to believe it was. But what I do remember is that Bohr really was focused at that time on what was going to happen after the bomb. He was like, listen, Robert, like you're creating this thing and that's incredible, but I'm from a different perspective here and you have to understand what this is going to do. There's two realities, the one before this goes off and the one after this goes off. But again, Nolan crafted his excellent line out of that. I mean, you are the American Prometheus, but my point Nice <laughs> Kenneth Branagh I don't know why, yeah. impression. <laughs> no, not a nice Kenneth Branagh impression, but <laughs> the point is Oppenheimer was hopeful enough to believe in Bohr. Bohr believed in a future where an arms like race would not happen. Bohr was like, listen, if we handle this the right way, and if we talk about peace treaties instead of arms races and secrets from the Soviets and whatnot, this could all work. And Oppenheimer was inclined to believe it would. And that's, you know, once it wasn't in his control anymore, that's kind of where it all went downhill. Him and Robbie were both not fully on board with this. When you look back at the Trinity test, Everyone else is cheering. He is not. Robbie, he was a true friend, but he also, when he first arrives to Los Alamos, he's like, I'm not coming on board. If you drop a bomb, it falls on the just no, and the unjust. I don't wish for the culmination of, yeah. Yeah. See, Gus, you know, it must be, is do that line think, in the book? What do you think? I'll answer that. Do you Whoa. think it's a Nolan line? Oh, this is a fun game, actually. <laughs> actually, or do you think he actually said that? I mean, it's such a perfect Nolan line, but honestly, I do believe he would say that. It's in the book. Oh my God, yeah. he said that. But that's the thing. It's in a letter. Nolan, uh, letter? Yeah. No, because Oppenheimer had wrote to Robbie like, come on, man, fuck with me over here. And Robbie's like, no, nah, nah, I don't wish for the call. It is a line, but it's a letter. So no one takes reality, creates an individual art. Another one. This one is probably the biggest creative liberty that Nolan took adapting history. The atmospheric ignition sequence where following Teller's calculations, Oppenheimer goes to visit Einstein to ask him and to converse about this. The truth is Oppenheimer never met Einstein until after the war. So that entire conversation that happens does take place, just not with Einstein. Teller did come up with these calculations and there was kind of a quick emergency where Oppenheimer's like, fuck, this can't be right. Let me go see real quick and ran calculations and then the near zero. All that stuff is real, but Oppenheimer never had that conversation with Einstein. Obviously, no one had to do this in order to give the ending sequence emotional weight because they have the conversation at the same exact place near Princeton. Oppenheimer never stepped foot in Princeton. Oppenheimer never met Einstein until after the war. Well, then that's really interesting because Early on, of course, it's nonlinear, so this is further on in the timeline. I know exactly what you're about to say. <laughs> when oh, no need, he's a friend. <laughs> he's a friend, and he yeah. says, why didn't you involve Einstein? In the Manhattan Project, in the Manhattan. yeah. 
one of the greatest scientists our time yeah of his time so if he had never met him that must be historically inaccurate no that's accurate what's inaccurate is a part when Charles is like let me introduce you and he's like, no we've been friends for years no the reality is you haven't but no Einstein was this is a major major part of the book which the thing with the film is it does kind of skip a lot of Oppenheimer's early early years which I, I get it I, you can't I mean you're not going to go from childhood to here it's not going to work you just can't do it from to a movie it's going to be six hours I would watch it so a lot of not watch it too a lot of Oppenheimer's like younger younger years are omitted from here but a lot of what was going on at the time in the world of physics and the society of physics at the time was Einstein's theory of relativity had been published and was you know acclaimed and it was the next big leap in physics but as Oppenheimer was growing up and becoming in his, in his formative years quantum physics quanta this theory of physics was slowly emerging and as a child Oppenheimer had went to this like Jewish school I forget what it's called but it's the Academy for something and the whole point of that was the school he went to as a kid this is what fascinates me about the book is some of these things you read about him as a kid let you understand his morality more later as a person because I really want to talk about his morality later but we got to talk about this now you just see how much of his his mindset is shaped from childhood I like existential psychological stuff like that where like I like the idea that your childhood years are your formative years and you like subconsciously don't realize that until later in life but oh my god the whole point of that is that <laughs> sorry wow <laughs> Oppenheimer had went to the school as a young boy in which he emerged from that school with documented and letters and so he, he realized he had a new way of thinking he's like oh I like to think about the world more openly that's the critical role is that quantum physics was a new theory that was like being introduced poking its head out and people were like fuck you like, go away it was rejected at the time and if Oppenheimer was raised like any other scientist he probably would have also rejected it but being raised as a kid to be open and accept new ideas helped him like it let quantum physics in so as he got older even when I'm talking about this I'm rambling but I promise even I'm glossing over like this stuff too but as he grew up he learned to accept quantum physics more and progress was being made in that department however Albert Einstein like publicly rejected it himself he was like I don't think quantum physics that's one line where like even though it's a whole fabricated sequence in the movie he never actually met Einstein one of the lines they exchange is very encompassing of Oppenheimer's documented perception of Einstein and vice versa as a kid where I, where Einstein is like so here we are trapped in your world of possibilities and needing certainty Einstein publicly rejected quantum physics as it was emerging and saying it was like what's this foolish nonsense about like possibility like all that matters is what's certain so yes even though they never met until after the war Oppenheimer did collectively amongst other scientists too Oppenheimer did eventually become even before his name was ever mentioned to the Manhattan Project, he was a big name in physics. The movie also glosses over that a little bit, but he was a big name in physics. That's why he was considered for the Manhattan Project, but also his politics prevented that. Well, he, he also, also brought that science to America. Yes, he did, exactly. So he was a big name, and so he helped kind of pioneer bringing quantum physics to America, exactly like you just said. So that line in the movie, even though historically inaccurate, does, you know, kind of capture how they felt about each other like greatest scientific mind of our time of his time Einstein's theory of relative he even said he never embraced the quantum world that it introduced mm -hmm. so that encompasses years of perception it's just insane it's amazing
So I do want to read the IMDb summary for this film. The story of American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. Pretty basic, especially compared to the complexity that Nolan brings to this film. So this film, it opens, well, it doesn't open with, we see a few shots before this with waves and Oppenheimer in school, but we see what the first title card of Nolan's filmography. Mm. Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to man. For this, he was chained to a rock and tortured for eternity. Whew, <laughs> that line goes hard. It goes insane. And I think that, I mean, keep in mind, this book is called American Prometheus. So even though it's all history, there is a preface in which the authors of the book do compare him, liken him to Prometheus. And Nolan was very adamant about, I'm not calling the film American Prometheus. This is Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah. American Prometheus wouldn't, I wouldn't have liked that title. Really? No. That line is so important because we were talking about the the trinity test the realization and after the trinity test scene we see that kitty gets a code to take they in the sheets, the sheets think is real that was real mm-hmm. oh my gosh that's 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 incredible and the ten dollars thing i'm good for it sorry no, i just keep like, remembering things that are like real yeah yeah because it makes okay. it amazing that's truly yeah. my brain when i'm listening to you talk i'm like oh i can say this i know what i can add here mm-hmm. And then I forget it all. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm throwing you off track. No, no, it's, a, it's fully okay. You're similar in this way that there's so much, we have so many thoughts on this film. We know it, that we could add so many things to this. I literally think of it as the butterfly effect every episode, honestly. Like, I could say that, I could say that. But that sequence ends, she gets the phone call that it was a success, fade to black. We see Oppenheimer, he's giving advice on how to handle the bomb. He says, we'll take it from here immediately. And then he's saying to Groves, I can go to Washington, D.C. together. Groves is like, what for? What for? Exactly. He says, well, keep me updated. And he's like, as best as I can. Mm-hmm. The immediacy of being left out. And that was the whole thing that they were all concerned about is what will happen to them after the war? How will they regard them after the war? And it was like that. It was so quick, and we see him so stressed about what's going to happen, waiting and waiting. You know, he seems like he's not sleeping. He looks so thin. Maybe it's just his That was also real to an extent. Oppenheimer learned about the bombing of Hiroshima with everyone else at the radio station. Like, that was real. Oppenheimer, Groves dropped it. He got a call after. Mm -hmm. And the best thing I ever did was appoint you. Yeah, that's real, too. I mean, it's distasteful, really, like how just horrible Oppenheimer was treated after Los Alamos, but in a sense, you know, Oppenheimer did have his communist ties and kind of was adamant about not being a... The thing with his morality is that the whole objective approach to portraying him in the book and the movie is kind of like what I was saying earlier, is that no one really knew what Oppenheimer was thinking, except for Oppenheimer. What about Kitty, though? Yeah, they had a pretty bad... She wasn't a great mommy. Like, how she's portrayed isn't... I felt like it was a little bit traumatized based on what I read. But again, I didn't finish the book. But yeah, she was kind of an alcoholic and like never really felt attached to her kids and was like, yeah. but even she didn't, no one really knew what Oppenheimer felt because he had to know on some level that he was being used at Los Alamos. But he also likely felt like, okay, but I'm going to get to come out on the other side of this being like the most 
influential person on the planet. Like Oppenheimer, what he did want greatness. Like Oppenheimer was someone who call it arrogance. I, I would say he was a little bit arrogant. I mean, hmm. the film was very careful to portray Oppenheimer objectively, but I would say Nolan didn't lean into kind of how arrogant Oppenheimer actually was and a little bit stubborn as he maybe could have. I don't mind it, but I'm just saying that side of him was there and it shows a few times in the movie for when he's breaking up with Jean and, and she's like uh, already knocked up, whatever. And he's like, I can't keep a good man down. Brilliant stands in for a lot. There are moments like that. And I guess if you are familiar with the book, then you would. That's why I guess I don't mind because I could see moments like that and be like, oh, okay, there it is. But if you're only judging Oppenheimer as a human being based on what you see in the movie, you just might not realize he actually was a little, he had a little bit more of a confront, not confrontational. He was actually not a very confrontational person, but he did have a bit more of a rougher side to him than the movie might lead you to believe. So he had to, on some level, realize that he was being used at Los Alamos, but didn't mind it because he knew that he was going to get that greatness that he wanted, that he set out to do. He wanted to be the most influential figure in in physics, man, and he knew that inventing the atomic bomb would do that. Nobel won for dynamite. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, really cool. <sighs> Something real. Have that dry cleaned. That's real. Are you serious? Oppenheimer remembered in document they're like grow or nickel. It was some documentation of like he actually did like order him to have him dry clean. That was just crazy, man. Whatever. Oppenheimer couldn't run a hamburger stand in a book. It's hot dog stand, but that's real too. Yeah. Hamburger yeah. or hot dog? Interesting. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah. But, damn, I forgot what I was getting at. Me too. <laughs> See, this time I have notes. <laughs> no, it's all right. Yeah, you got notes. Um, you have been talking about how Nolan made this objective. Oh, yeah, 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 it was, yeah. Nolan made sure not to pick a side in regards to Oppenheimer in a similar fashion to what Stanley Kubrick did with Full Metal Jacket on the subject of the Vietnam War. How do you think Nolan accomplished this so brilliantly? I think by understanding what Oppenheimer's like full story really was, because one of the main criticisms I had heard about this movie when it was coming out and people were watching it is that like, oh, well, I was expecting it to be more about the Trinity test and like the atomic bomb than everything else. And that's not really what Oppenheimer's story is about. The authors of American Prometheus with a preface in the book, or I think in here, where they were like, we would not have wanted to tell Oppenheimer's story in such a great detail if it weren't for the 1954 security hearing, if it weren't for how Oppenheimer was treated after the war. The 1954 security hearing was a big, big thing in politics at the time. It was huge. It was Oppenheimer's like public embarrassment. It was, it was horrible for Oppenheimer. And this gravity of what happened after, that was the first major fallout between science and politics a lot of society's problems today with accepting science in the world of politics can be accredited to the 1954 security hearing and it's something it's something no, no no i can't take credit for this thought it's something i read in the preface of this book and there's a preface where martin sherwin because kai bird the co-author oh no kai bird is alive martin sherwin sadly passed away days before the movie was publicly announced but he knew the project was happening, obviously, because they had given him the rights, Nolan the rights to write the script. But before the movie was like publicly announced, Martin Sherwin sadly passed away. But here is a preface in the screenplay of Nolan's movie by Kai Bird, written by Kai Bird. And it says, in some discernible measure, we can blame the legacy of the flawed Oppenheimer security trial of this distrust, 
which in 1954, America's most celebrated scientist was falsely accused and publicly humiliated, sending a warning to all scientists not to engage in the political arena as intellectuals. What happened to him damaged our ability as a society to debate honestly about scientific theory. Wow. When I read it, that's, I can't take credit for this thought. This is a crazy, this is like a crazy parallel to make. And it blows my mind because that's true. That's absolutely true. true. Funny thing is that people arguing today probably don't even know about the 1950s. It just is so ingrained in their heads. I mean, this is not common knowledge. Like no one fully knew Oppenheimer's story too much. Yeah, I'm talking like a nerd right now about Oppenheimer. But mind you, I'll admit before the movie, I just knew basic about him, that he was the father of the atomic bomb. I knew the whole destroyer of worlds thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how deep it went. No, no one's movie is what made me really read all this stuff. But that's how he just made the movie like as objective as it was, because he made it the story of Oppenheimer's like life and not just the Trinity tests. Like I guess some people were expecting. The movie's called Oppenheimer. It wasn't called Los Alamos. It's not called The Manhattan Project. It's not called Trinity. It's called Oppenheimer. It's about him as a person. And not about like what he did, you know what I mean? Because the only way, which might sound counter like productive, but the only way to really portray this story as objectively as possible is to portray it from Oppenheimer's point of view. But that's interesting that it's such an objective film, yet the screenplay is written in the first person. In the black and white scenes, though, it's written object, yes. like objectively. Yeah, so we do have like a subjective in color. That's more of Oppenheimer's point of view. And then we see Strauss, which is black and white. That is the more objective. But the film as a whole is objective. I mean, it's, it's rare for someone to write a screenplay in the first person. Yeah. So it could have been pretty subjective, but he made it so objective that the audience is able to choose to have their own opinion on... How do we feel about this guy? And I'm sure people have a range of opinions on him now, but the way he's portrayed is so brilliant. And one of the criticisms was, how do you not show the impact of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And Nolan's response was just as I thought. He was like, he was not aware of that before. As you said, it was all on paper before, and now it's become real. And now it's really hitting with him the consequences of his decisions. And one of the most brilliant portrayals of this is early on with that apple. He has this apple. Blackett does not let him go see Bohr doing a lecture. So he injects it with potassium cyanide. He leaves it there for him. And then Bohr is in there with Blackett later. He sees the apples about to be eaten. He takes it back. There's a line later in the film after Gene had passed. Kitty tells him, you can't, gosh, why don't I have this memorized? You can't do something terrible. And then what's that line she says? And then have people feel bad for you and the consequences. Yeah. Yes. You know it. Yeah. That's exactly him because you can apply that to that scene in the beginning with the apple and you can apply it as a whole to the Trinity test, the bomb. There are certain lines in this film like, Theory only takes you so far. Amateurs seek the sun, but... Amateurs seek the sun, get power, stays in the shadow. That's crazy. I have a full section on contrasts. There's um, fission and fusion, which there was a line that I told you before this episode seems important towards the end when fission and fusion are, are mentioned together when Oppenheim is about to be rejected for his security clearance. 
I did not get to write that line fully down, but do you have it memorized? Not like fully memorized. Honestly, it's probably in the book. I could find it, but I just remember the, the idea behind the line. Just like you were not opposed to a fission bomb in 1942 being developed, but then all of a sudden the fusion bomb comes along and you're opposed to that. No moral qualms about that, huh? And then when it became a reality, then he did. That's when he's being questioned. And then the whole overexposure and the scores intensifying, asking questions. When did you develop moral qualms? Mm -hmm. Beginning in 1942, you were actively pushing the development of the H-bomb, weren't you? Yeah. Which is a great parallel to what's happening to straws in the black and white segment, too, also with Dr. Hill. Towards the end with that editing between that, the Senate confirmation hearing and Oppenheimer's denial, that was one of the things I noticed the most in my recent watch. The editing of this film was unbelievable with how it all connects. Now, I don't have my notes marked up, but I'm sure I can find examples in here. Well, I mean, first, just, well, actually, I don't want to cut you off if you're... No, go right ahead. I'm, I'm going to start looking. One of my favorite things about this film, structurally and from a screenwriting perspective, really is just the way the script is arranged and narratively how the film plays out because there are so many contrasts and parallels between the fission and fusion timelines. Like, even if you just think about how they're introduced, fission and fusion are both introduced with a close-up of their respective POV's face, right? Because the color is from Oppenheimer's point of view, black and white is from straw, or not even straw's point of view, just objective point of view. Mm -hmm. But the first thing you see is fission. What's fission? Separation. You don't know it yet. You don't know it yet. I mean, unless you've read the book, I guess, but you don't know it yet. But Oppenheimer's in this dingy ass little room because fission is about to happen to him. Remember what remember that beautiful parallel that I just read from this book about how the entire world of today can be accredited back to that pathetic security hearing? You don't know it yet, but that's fission right there is about to happen. And fusion, what's fu I mean, fusion is it all comes full circle, it all fuses. What's gonna happen in fusion? Straws's mistake from fifty-four. Straws's treatment of Oppenheimer is finally about to you don't know it yet because it's the first time you're seeing it the second shot of the movie but the first time you, you see that you don't realize it yet but you're about to see fusion you're about to see like i'm smiling because oh this is just a phenomenal film you're about to see Strauss's actions come back to bite him fusion and once the film reaches it's like two-thirds mark after the trinity test that's when the film's like true nature reveals itself i would say that's when the twists i'm not gonna say twists because it's history it's not a twist i mean it's just how you know but narratively narratively it's a twist narrative twist that's when each narrative twist in its respective timeline takes place because leading up to the twist in the fission timeline you did kind of get a sense that something was weird like why is this trial going on in like a room like what's really happening here why is that curly hair due to the glasses being so weird strauss was like we're going to set him up away from the cameras, the reporters. Exactly. In they this little room, they dusted yeah. off yeah. for him to be completely denied security. But even before the film reveals its true nature and shows you what's going on in each trial, like you get a sense that something isn't right narratively in each timeline because, again, yeah, dingy room, you're like, wait, why is all this really happening in a dingy room? Like, why is the witnesses sitting on this little couch right behind Oppenheimer? Like, this doesn't seem like a court. Like, you don't really know it's supposed to be this humiliating. You don't really know the scope of it yet, but you know something's not right with that timeline. Respectively, in the black and white, you're also seeing, like, okay, wait a minute. What is, is, is this Robert Downey Jr. guy? Is he, like, on trial? It's like, 
what's really happening like the judges are kind of being like i'm asking you mr straw like you don't really know what's going on yet narratively but you kind of get a sense that something isn't right there either you're like why is he asking for advice what's 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 really going on here and then once the switches happen after the trinity test and each timeline reveals its true nature and you're like wow so this is a fucking security hearing narratively that's when it takes off and that's when the film kind of just begins its exit from there the film becomes a nightmare a nightmarish downward spiral as everything just kind of like falls into place and the perils at the end are beautiful because then you have the twists happening at the same time after the trinity test and then towards the end the i guess climaxes of each one i mean you have you have dr hill come in and throw everything off of the black and white you have the overexposed the scene you were just describing earlier the overexposed aggressive scene with roger rob that scene the way it's shot and the way it's written and the way it, it plays out i'm talking strictly the overexposed roger rob scene that's what i'm choosing to call it now that scene honestly tonally i would say is the one that's most effective in capturing the entire spirit and morality of oppenheimer as a whole because the scene is overexposed. Oppenheimer's feeling like a deer in headlights. He's feeling threatened. He's vulnerable. You know, he's... he's deer in he's, headlights. That's amazingly, yeah. Oppenheimer's a deer because he can't answer the question. I mean, he's saying, we, 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 you, you, you. I'm asking you, 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 you. Because he can't. When did he... He can't. I mean, he doesn't know what he... Fe- like, the approach with this film is that the only way to objectively portray someone larger than life is to make him a human being. Oppenheimer is someone who there's nobody like him in the world. I hope there will no be nobody like him in the future. Honestly, I hope not. Because, Let's knock on wood, is there? Yeah, I, I don't know. I hope there will be nobody like him in the future. I mean, the female Oppenheimer and Tenet. <laughs> Thankfully, Tenet's not a documentary. But the point is that, like, nobody can really put, you know, I mean, you can see somebody, I don't know, watch a serial killer on TV and be like, oh, I can not understand what murder is like obviously but i mean you can you murder is such a you know it's a crime it exists it's something real how can you relate to somebody who invented a new means of a new world a new world exactly oppenheimer created a new world how do you objectively portray someone like that you fucking bring him down to our level and make him a human and show him what he was thinking but then you also have to think well wait a minute how was he thinking how can you ever really really know oppenheimer himself didn't know he didn't have any answers in public he really was someone he won people over with words you know the theorist scene in the film is one of those classic few seconds of film time years of movie time or years of book time the theorist sequence in the film where you know like beginning with um what's her name miss something it started with an h i think i don't know one of the doctors like is basically talking about there's no need to drop the bomb anymore because hitler is dead Germany's about to surrender. You know, the, the impact of the gadget on civilization, which was actually really meetings they were holding at Los Alamos there. It was a big thing. When Germany surrendered, everyone at Los Alamos was like, well, what the fuck are we doing here then? Why are we still doing this? Japanese surrender seems imminent. Yeah, people were because people were so convinced they were in a race against the Germans. That's why the spirit at Los Alamos was as energetic as it was, because everyone really was like, you got to beat the Germans. And then the Germans surrendered and everyone's like, guys, do we still need to make this thing? Like, What's the point? But unfortunately, from a governmental standpoint, they were like, well, we've already sunk years and billions of dollars into this. We have to finish it. So let's just find an excuse. Uh, use it against the Japanese. There's something catastrophic in this, mo- in, in this book that I learned. Stimson had basically like secret knowledge that Japan was like going to surrender and could not share that. There's one line in the film. Remember in a sequence that you were referencing earlier? 
where he's like, you'll keep me informed, whatever, as best I can. There's one line where Oppenheimer is, I think, either telling this to Teller or to Groves, and he's like, Stimson's been informing me that we bombed an enemy that was essentially defeated. It's just one line, one throwaway line. Stimson's telling me that we bombed an enemy that was basically defeated. That's because immediately following the bombing, Oppenheimer was trying to talk to Stimson. Stimson was like retiring from his position or something. It was like literally like his last day. And he like shared a lot, but I mean, he's like, it's in your hands now, but I'm sharing with you, we did not need to bomb Japan. Like we did not need to bomb Japan. That whole meeting with the government official, Matthew Modine is in there and, you know, they're like, we know Japan will not surrender. So they have to use the bomb. So there is a conflict. There's more intelligence or something. Like, I don't know how the government works, but the book, I promise you, does go into like detail. And I probably would be able to find it and tell you, but it, I can't flip through all this. If I had this annotated or something, maybe. I'm just re- trying to recall it all from memory. But all this is, I don't even know how. I mean, I know why. I know what the basic point was, but I don't know. How Fission and fusion. Yeah, that too. But the whole thing with the theorist scene is that everyone was saying that Germany did not need to be, you know, that we didn't need to finish doing the bomb. And Oppenheimer in that moment in the movie won them over with his words. He said, listen, theorists, we imagine a future and our imaginings haunt us. They won't understand it until they see it. They won't see it until they've used it. And once we complete the bomb, only then can we ensure peace. Because here's him reaching to Bohr. He's like, once they've seen the bomb, once they see the horrible, terrible secret of Los Alamos, which is like a nickname that was dubbed, by the way, the terrible secret of Los Alamos before the bomb really went off. That's something that captures Oppenheimer's morality perfectly because he's able to win these people over with his words. And it was documented like Oppenheimer's a very strong personality trait of him is that he could convince anybody of anything. Like if he could convince anybody, anybody of anything, you know, he's the great salesman of science. Remember what Salari called him? You're the great salesman of science. You can convince anybody of everything, even yourself, because he really could. What I'm trying to get at is that Oppenheimer kind of selfishly, am I throwing you off? No, your description reminded me of another character. I'm not sure if it's in a Nolan film of a master manipulator, or if I'm thinking about William Hale in Killers of the Flower Moon. Maybe. There's someone that is very much that description that I was going to try and make a comparison to, but it's not coming to me, so please continue on. I mean, it's just that, like, you see that scene, and maybe you don't realize it at first, or you don't want to confront it, but are also reading the book, and it really tells you how... This is very, like, informative and kind of, like, objective in nature in the way it just lays out details. But every now and then, there is a little bit of, like, the author's perspective on certain events in here. And you kind of have to understand that Oppenheimer was pursuing this project, and he himself had also put so much time and energy and money into it, that even though this is where I feel like a key part of his morality and something this goes as deep into as it can, is that even though he probably felt also that Maybe we shouldn't. Germany surrender. Maybe we shouldn't finish this. Maybe we shouldn't make this. Maybe we shouldn't. But he was also like, this is mine. Like, I've been pursuing this my entire life. Like, you can't be objective in approaching. Like, you have to understand that someone larger than life like this was still human and still had human desires. And, you know, we can put this man on this pedestal. And of course, he has to be approached in in a certain way because of you know his status as a person but from his point of view he's still just a person so that's the only way you can really approach a topic like this and a character like this objectively is to just kind of show that 
maybe if it wasn't his name as director of the Manhattan Project, yeah, maybe he also would have signed that petition and been like, no, let's not, because as director, there were, you know, the film does a great job at like capturing how paranoid he felt. People were wiretapping his phone. The Chevalier incident in the movie, the Chevalier incident is insane. There's two moments in the book that they, remember, the movie's not in order, you know, the movie's near. So even, even, even before you actually see the actual events of the Chevalier incident, you understand that it's going to be something, oops, like, oh, this is the Chevalier incident they were talking about a few minutes ago, shit. But in the book, it's all in order. So the author describes the Chevalier incident as the first and possibly the gravest mistake of Oppenheimer's life and something that he never could have understood would bite him in the ass years and years and years and years later. And the Chevalier incident is, he is the communist trying to get information across to other members of his party. The Soviets, yeah. And Oppenheimer in the film doesn't say anything. He is fully aware of what's going on. And then we see nonlinear editing cut to, I've learned that this was a big mistake and should have been reported immediately. But the thing is that there are several different accounts of the Chevalier incident and no one really knows how it went down. I mean, we know, well, we know for a fact Oppenheimer never actually said anything. Okay. Oppenheimer never actually gave any information, but there are accounts and a different because Chevalier later in his life wrote a biography and published it. And the Chevalier incident is part of it. And his account of things, Kitty was present in Oppenheimer's account of the thing. Kitty was not there. There's certain accounts where it, the whole thing is just a mess, but it's something that the author writes in this book is like the Chevalier incident was something that Oppenheimer could not have possibly understood it yet. And I just know that no one was reading that. No one read, because no one read the book, obviously. I just know that no one was reading this and being like, wow, like I have to treat this part with like care. How do I portray to the audience that this is something horrible, but also I'm writing, I'm going to write the script from Oppenheimer's point of view he can't know in the moment that it's something horrible. So he knew that he wanted to cut back and forth between like events and the security trial. That's why I liked reading this because I kind of put myself in like Nolan's head as best I can. I don't think anyone... Oh, really amazing to put head. yourself in Nolan's head. Whew, I'd love to meet that man. Oh, but, the dream. Yeah. But the Chevalier incident, it's something that later was compounded by the Colonel Pash incident, which the Colonel Pash incident, the author kind of makes note in here also to write that the Colonel Pash incident was like the biggest reason that the 54 security trial went as horribly as it did because all this began because Lomonitz was drafted. His friend Lomonitz was drafted into the army and he wanted to get him. He was like, wait a minute, why is this happening? And he was drafted because the security at Los Alamos didn't like Lomonitz. They were like, bro, fucking communists and you're fucking doing this F-A-E-C-T shit. Get the fuck out of here. We're drafting you into the damn army. Mm-hmm. And Oppenheimer was like, no, 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 I want him back. So here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them a different communist. So he did kind of feed them a cock and bull story, as it said in the movie. And in the book, the book, I implore you, I would let you like borrow this if you want, read mm-hmm. certain like moments of the, this. This book for me gave, like when I'm watching the Colonel Passion, it's a lot, that's when I finally understood the full gra- I was like, wow, this is horrible. Because remember, before Oppenheimer was even elected or drafted into the Manhattan Project, they didn't want him there because of his politics. It took Lawrence to be like, Oppie, keep the fucking politics out of this so I can bring you onto this damn project. And only then was Oppenheimer like, okay, no, 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 I understand. And he did in the book. It was like this moment of realization where he was like, okay, you know what? I get it. I need to put the politics aside so I can be director of this project. Mm -hmm. That didn't mean the government trusted him. I mean, the government was still following him the whole time, not just after the project. So 
people like the government already didn't trust him as director of the Manhattan Project. They're like, bro, this guy has so many ties to former communists. Like, why are you doing this, Groves? You know, so that was already its own thing. So people already didn't like that he was associating with Lomanitz. People were like, Lomanitz, let's get this guy out of here. Let's draft him. And so Oppenheimer goes and he's like, hey, there's this dude, Eltonton. You know, half of what he said is kind of true. There was this dude, Eltonton who was kind of trying to get other people. That's part of why I was a little confused, because he's saying that he told this BS story, yet some of it is true. He was part of the FACET, but... That's why he was a little bit naive. In his head, he thought he would be able to go and be like, hey, Elsington, okay, bye. He didn't expect... Obviously, Pash was going to hear, oh, no, tell me more. Tell me more. But then Oppenheimer is kind of digging. We all do this. That's a human... We all do this. We all get ourselves in shitty situations. Oppenheimer is kind of talking and realizing wait a fucking minute, I'm going to have to give them Chevalier. I can't give them Chevalier. Like, he's my friend. I don't want to. So it, literally, he's a deer in headlights. In the moment, he's like, um, um, intermediary, um, there's some dude who wouldn't involve part of the pro, um, El- intermediary. Hey, Eltonton, good. hey, man. He's caught in the moment. He doesn't know what to say. And only later, you know, months later, did he eventually give Groves a name. But it's something that should have happened in the moment. It's something that in the book is written as like, a situation that because it went down the way it did was just it could have went down so many different ways and Oppenheimer didn't realize it in the moment but this was like a cock and bull story that would haunt him for the rest of his life because of this cock and bull story that's a large part of the reason the security trial went as as, as horribly as it did because of that because after that Pash was like well okay this guy's fucking protecting some more communists like why is he the director of this damn project like mm-hmm. Tensions rose, paranoia rose. People were following him on his affair visits to Gene. You know, he was being tailed. People were following him everywhere. And in the trial, all his naivete. The thing is, director of the Manhattan Project, he was like, man, fuck shit, ain't no one following me. You're not just self-important, you're, you're actually important. important. And he didn't realize that. And then in the security trial, that's the tragedy of the trial is because, of course, he's loyal. Of course, he's not a communist. Of course, whatever. But unfortunately he did do things back then that you can't dismiss he did a, from his point of view yes he was just following gene to go cheat on his wife he just wanted some some you know some action right but of course from the government's point of view they're going to be like wait a minute is this some communist you're shacking up with every weekend well what do you and then you see in the scene when she's asking him where did you go where did you he's like i can't tell you i cannot tell you that's the tragedy is because he was loyal yeah. but you can in a sense understand how there's so many errors and missteps along the way that of course this case was going to be slowly built up again it's sad because maybe if he was a little bit more careful during the manhattan project maybe if he really really was a bit more careful and cleaned up maybe it wouldn't have went down the way it did you know so he's larger than life he's a god he's america's prometheus but he's also a stupid man you know (laughs) Not man. I mean, like human. He was also just a human being with error, full of imperfections and judgment errors and stuff. You know, you can't. You can elevate him on this and put him on this status, deservedly so, while also understanding that he is a human being capable of and who did, who factually made many, many errors in his life. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's I think what Nolan was keeping in mind the entire time, trying to portray this film as objectively as he could. I think that's a large part of the approach. In the preface of the screenplay, it stated that more than one screenwriter had approached Kai Bird and been like, hey man, let me write a movie based on your book. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And they just couldn't do anything. 
they probably didn't really know how to approach Oppenheimer as a character. Maybe in some screenplays he's the villain, maybe in some he's the hero, maybe in some it's too emotional. Maybe he's communist, maybe he's, he's a loyal citizen that we should be empathetic towards. Exactly. Maybe he's one of those, but he's all, definitely all of them to some extent. That's a thing, you can't pick a side. An incredibly complex human being. While you're talking about the morality with Oppenheimer, I keep getting flashes of moments where everyone's celebrating the next day of the bomb, the test went well, and he's like, hand on his head and he's stressed. I'm also thinking the goal was met to create a weapon of mass destruction that can help America win the war. And that was the goal. That was also Groves's goal. That was everyone's goal. We got to get to this point. We got to do this, this. And when it happens and when it's reality, the switch of, oh, there's something bigger that we now have to think about, we have to address. And that situation is unbelievably complex because, how do I say it? It's hard sometimes. It is. And especially with this, it's such an ethical. Yeah, a very ethical dilemma. Yeah. That argument for after whether it should have been done or not would not have happened without the experimentation. Gosh, why can't I piece it the way? I, I had it in my brain. Like you're saying the fallout, how basically how it, everything went, the consequences of everything later wouldn't have happened if. Yes, they met their goal. They succeeded in that. But unfortunately, there's a bigger question that is more concerning. Than just their goal. It's going to affect the entire world, exactly, which is why Bohr is like, hey, listen, I'll take care of out there. You have to understand that what you're about to introduce to the world will forever outlive the Nazis. That's an important line in there for sure. What you're about to introduce will outlive the Nazis, and that's something that Oppenheimer should. It's another, like, talk about human error. Maybe if he planned for this better, maybe 1954 wouldn't have happened the way it did, because what happens when he meets with true, he realizes that, remember, it's, it's emphasized in the film that there's only like one conference in Potsdam that Truman is going to have the opportunity to negotiate with Stalin and be like, yo, we invented a new bomb. How about let's make a deal? You don't make one and we won't bomb you and we're chill. You know, the, the whole idea was Oppenheimer and Bohr, largely Oppenheimer, wanted to be able to negotiate treaty. He thought he'd be able to control his creation once it was unleashed on the world. Talk about naivete. Introduce an atomic bomb to the world and you think you're the one still in control? When you weren't even the one really fully in control to begin with, let's be honest here, buddy. No, and immediately like, when he succeeded, it was taken away. It's undercut by a shot of them being holed up into boxes. A beautiful edit. A, 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 honestly, a really great edit. Fade out of the success of the Trinity test into whoop, boom. With respect, Dr. Oppenheimer, we'll take it from here. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of the downward spiral Shutting of the out. nightmare. And it just becomes, you kind of start to wonder, like, damn, like if Oppenheimer was less self-obsessed and maybe a bit more proactive, maybe he could have planned for this and maybe he could have had a better plan for Truman because that meeting with Truman, unfortunately, is not very dramatized in the film. A lot of that is really, truly how it went down. Truman did say, don't bring this crybaby back in here. No. Yeah, yeah, Truman did reportedly, like, he did say, Hiroshima's not about you. Like, no one cares who fucking made the bomb. They care who dropped it. I dropped it. Truman was very naive and obsessed and, you know. So who would you say the blame is put more on, Truman or Oppenheimer? 
it's 50-50, kind of. I mean, he built it. He. I know. I mean, for he built it. From what I mean, from what I remember in the book, it's emphasized that Oppenheimer was like so caught off guard by Truman's immediate response to the way the meeting was going that in the moment he did what isn't it starting to become a recurring theme. In the moment, he didn't really know what to. He was like, uh, 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 I feel like I have blood on my hands. And Truman gave him the handkerchief, and he just. Uh, 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 what the Maybe if Oppenheimer could have thought more and been like, bro, wait, hold on, put that handkerchief away, like, listen to me talk. You know, maybe it would have went down a little bit differently. And that really was, and another author emphasized this in the book too, it is heavily stressed that that meeting is also one of the major tragedies and like that maybe the course of history could have been steered. Because after that, Truman immediately didn't trust Oppenheimer. And Truman is immediately like, man, fuck this guy. I don't want to fucking ever see him ever again. I made a connection. What? He's seized by guilt, which prohibits him from doing as much as he should. Dom and Inception. Inception, yeah, damn. He's pretty, yeah, he, he is very, he is, I mean, he's not creating, fabricating memories, yeah, but. But that guilt it is a hold over him and preventing him from. From being, progressing. From, yeah. From handling the situation as efficiently as he could, you know. Yes. What a connection. You see, you do. You yeah, see oh, 100% I get it. Yeah, Dom can't. Yeah, yeah, Dom is swallowed whole by guilt. Yes. That's crazy. And that, that's kind of the guilt is that rock from Prometheus on him. And it prevents, like, even in that scene, and you're mentioning the, the Rab uh, overexposed scene. He's not answering that question because he doesn't know how to answer it. He's so, he feels so much guilt. And even later in the film, Kitty's like, do you think if you let them tar and feather you that you're going to be, gosh, what's the rest of the line? I'm sure they're you know. Free, that they're going to forgive you? Yes. Well, but that's one of those things where then you can, when you, once you start to put the movie in order and you realize like chronologically, basically his conversation with Einstein happens like in the middle, you know, chronologically, right. like before he begins to work for the AECT. And that's when uh, in that conversation with Einstein, Einstein's like, now it's your turn to live with the consequences. Like, you know, you're going to have to go through your life now letting them fucking punch you in the face and kick you in the balls. But don't worry, then they'll give you your salmon and potato salad, little motherfucker. So I think that's, that, that's really what the mentality that Oppenheimer carried with him throughout. And he's a kid, he's like, why won't you fight? Why won't you fight? I think Oppenheimer was just holding on to that, is that in his head he's like, no, I'll just go through it, fuck it, I'll just go through it. And that is another problem in and of itself, because by the time he realized that he did need to fight back, it was too late. By the time, basically when he realized he needed to fight back, Strauss's plan was already in motion. You know, at that point, he had already given board in the, at that point, it was too late. Maybe if Oppenheimer had grown a pair, you know, <laughs> I, know I mean, yeah, I mean, I try to be funny sometimes, but it really is a little tragic. I mean, maybe if Oppenheimer had really been very adamant and pushed back and fought and fought and fought and fought before maybe he would have stood a chance but he didn't so that's i mean you watch this movie and like you have this subconscious desire to like sympathize with a main character in a movie obviously so it's something like innate in any audience's head you want to sympathize with the main character but for me every subsequent viewing of this film helps me like approach it way more objectively and being like yeah i mean you know what like i can't really feel bad for you on that one bro like i'm sorry you know mm. because he's a human i mean even my best friend i mean I, you know everyone no one is like 100 percent agrees with anyone else's actions or words you know i mean everyone disagree so he's a human i'm treating this larger than life character like a human being you know that's how you approach it it's something i keep bringing up because i want it like that's really 
the essence of how I feel Nolan portrayed this film as objectively as he should have. I mean, a large part of that really, that Roger Robb sequence at the end is one of my favorites, and I keep blanking on the actor's name who plays Jason Roger Clark. Robb. Jason Clark, thank you, because I honestly believe that might be like the fourth or fifth best performance in that entire movie. Fourth or fifth? Yes. Please rank them. Okay, I mean, obviously Killian and RDJ are up top two, then Emily Blunt, three. I mean, honestly, I might put... Casey Affleck? He's not in the movie enough for me. In the few minutes that he is in there, I pro yes, he grabs me, but Roger Wright, that actor, Jason Clark? Jason Clark. Had to, isn't he in another Nolan movie? He's in The Great Gatsby. He's not in a Nolan movie? <sighs> There's several uh, frequent collaborators in there, but I... My brain places him in Inception, but I know he's not in Inception. No. Or no, 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 my brain places him in Batman Begins. That early on? Whatever, we can look that up later. Because I, I really want to play... I've seen so much discussion with this movie, of course, and even in some of the best praises of this film I've seen, no one mentions that performance. Why not? Jason Clark, it, it honestly, I really think, I'm pretty confident I'd say that's the fourth best performance. I'd say Killian, RDJ, um, RDJ Emily, and then Jason. I really would. Because right from the start, just the tone of his voice, the way he's carrying himself, the way he's sitting, I mean, the way... Everything about the way this character composes himself comes to a head in that final act when he's just like, you, 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 I'm asking you. I choose to believe that was improvised because in the script, he only says you once. It's just like you, I'm asking you. In the script, it's not, I think they do mention, I should be able to find this easily because it's also going to be like in the, you know, obviously it should be like in the final. Yeah, light stabs through cracks in the wall. So that whole overexposed feel to the sequence was written here. But I promise you, in the script, he says, you want. He just says, or, you know, you helped, you helped pick the target, didn't you? He's like, we, he said, you, I'm asking you. Not even an exclamation point. I really choose to believe Jason Clark took that line and was like, I ain't saying that shit once. He's like, you, 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 I'm asking you. The way he leans over and it's like, says it. And the way the light is on his face. In the theater, it's really difficult to pick up on every single thing he says there. So reading the script helped. And then the, the audio, at least for me, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe with my equipment, but for me, the audio mix on the home release, I really thought I was going to have to put on subtitles, um, but I didn't have to at all. I really could pick out every single word and I didn't even have to, I had the book next to me and I was like, oh, in case I need to, but I didn't have to. And really in the end, when Roger Robb is like grilling him, the first couple times I watched the movie, I really felt sympathetic. That was probably where I felt the most sympathetic, one of the most sympathetic feelings I had for Oppenheimer because I'm like, damn, he's grilling you. He's not giving you like an opportunity. Boom. But, but then last night watching that scene, it's kind of another example of like less sympathy for the main character because I'm watching that and I'm just like, you know what, man, he is asking some really good questions. Roger, he's like no moral scruples in 1942 or, or whatever the year was plenty in 1945 or 45 or 40. I forget the exact years because it's true. During the development of the A-bomb, Teller actively was working on plans for a hydrogen bomb. And Oppenheimer was supporting it. He was like, yeah, keep working on that shit, no problem. Later changed his mind. You know, from his point of view, you can see it because it's easy to see it from his point of view. You see, and you're like, okay, well, I mean, he obviously saw that the bomb was being used and then was like, okay, this isn't being used the way that I was hoping it'd be used. Like, can we just like not do this anymore? But from the government's point of view, they see it and they're like, well, why would you change your mind like that? Because you're working. They wanted to label him as a communist. So of course it's easy for them to fit the bill and be like, well, 
the only reason you would change your mind and try to stop America from making a hydrogen bomb is because you're secretly working for the Russians. Mm-hmm. And it sounds, you hear that now, and you're like, okay, take off the tinfoil hat. But you can kind of see it from the government's point of view. And it was a paranoid time. It was the Macron very paranoid time. It's just a boiling, melting pot of the worst timing and the worst qualities. It's, it's just a horrifying nightmare of mistakes that caught up to him. Towards the end, this is where the editing, in my most recent watch, the editing is what really struck out to me is just phenomenal. So I wrote, Kitty begins to testify on his behalf, and then we see Rab pulling closer to her. Mm-hmm. Cut to Hill continues to tell the truth on Strauss, and then we see Strauss telling Nichols that he appoints Roger Rab. Nichols goes, ouch. And then we see him with this giant book, and then we mm-hmm. see him start questioning Kitty. Mm-hmm. The way that's arranged and put together, but there's also that voiceover of Dr. Hill, and he's like, if I was on the board, I would have argued against the tactics used by this person, Roger Robb. And then you're seeing him pull up the chair. You're like, wait a minute, that's the tactic that he's used. That's an unprofessional tactic, pulling the chair closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything, that's, that's a really good point because like, at that point, there's literally like five minutes left in the movie or something like that. It's like, getting close. Like 10 minutes left in the movie. And that's when you choose to like introduce Rob's personnel. That's why I'm saying the acting is so good because you, you don't know, you don't have any like, instruction from the film yet to identify rob as a character literally until the last 10 minutes however at that point you know what this guy is like already you know what i mean and kitty she's on him with every single i don't like your phrase because i don't like your phrase yeah 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 emily blunt is a is phenomenal that scene was what did it unbelievable on his toes every single point he makes her memories with the communist party getting it wrong because it's been too long, and the differentiation between two types of communists. And another board member is like, yeah, I wouldn't know the difference either. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't know either. I thought I was, yeah. Exactly. That's like one of the first times in the film, like, one of the gray board acknowledges anyone. I mean, and it's because of Kitty, of all people. Mm -hmm. Crazy. And that board, they didn't let Oppenheimer's lawyer have access to all the files, so then... Yeah, I mean, it was orchestrated just like that. Mm-hmm. It was how he put it. The thing is, like, it's a systematic destruction of his entire credibility so that he can never again speak on matters of national security. He wanted him out. He was like, man, I don't want this guy anymore. He initially let him into the AEC. He's like, all right, you know what? I don't want you anymore. You're, like, not doing what I wanted you to do. So get out. And early on, when they're talking about Oppenheimer and referring to the denial of the security clearance, RDJ's character, Strauss, says someone wanted him silenced. Alden... Al- I don't know how to say his name. Alden Ehrenreich, I think. Yeah, Alden Ehrenreich. He's like, well, who gave him the files? I don't know. Someone who wanted him silenced. Someone who wanted Someone him silenced. Someone who wanted him silenced. And then later on in the film, Strauss is going on about, like, he should be thanking me. He's not remembered for Hiroshima. He got everything he wanted. And Thank even in that moment, it's hard to dismiss what he's saying in that moment. Because he's kind of right. Strauss gave Oppenheimer kind of what he wanted after the war instead of having to be the public figure of guilt or the kind of hey, just come work at princeton come work at the aec you know and i mean i don't think like like i said i haven't really gotten enough far enough into here yet to where i've like, really read much about straws but i'm not inclined to believe that he's that great of a person but i could be wrong well he was vindictive 
Yeah, no, he was. And like literally kept personal grudges against scientists. Like he already didn't trust scientists. There was even a line about that. Like, oh, you don't know scientists like I do. Because he just completely attaches. That's a whole something more important thing. You know what I mean? He, he was so convinced that he turned Einstein against me because of you something he said about me. Said. And then the last scene we're seeing, it's not about him at all. It's not. It is something more important. Something way more important than just one person. Yeah, the edit, that's where the editing really comes in. That's how, I mean, that's obviously how no one's going to like edit a movie like this. It's alluded to so many times in black and white, especially, and then you see it in color. Shout out to Jennifer Lame, who edited the film. The Oscar nominations aren't out yet, but I would hope and think she would win for editing. Because if you really look through this film the way we have, you would see, as we were just talking about, how incredible the editing is, and it's non-linear. It's non-linear, so it's even more complex and complicated to understand. Just in the sequence I just said between Kitty and Rab, and then the whole um, interrogation between Rab and Kitty, that whole sequence is phenomenal, the cutting back and forth. You know she read that script and was like, damn, I have to do that? Like, what? Because <laughs> a lot of that really... <laughs> yeah, that last... I just think about that last, like, 30, 40 minutes of that movie. And it really is just, it's a never-ending, like, spiral. I have pretty much every track on the score of this album memorized. I wish I could immediately see. Gosh, we haven't talked about the score. Yeah, I could talk about the score forever. I love music, like. I would love to do an episode on Christopher Nolan's scores. Ooh, yeah. Yeah? I would do a score episode. But you hear pieces of these different tracks at the beginning of the film. You talk about fission and fusion, like, the second half of this film where fusion... You know, there's two timelines introduced and there's two timelines at play and one is fission and one is fusion, but really narratively as a whole, that last 30, 40 minutes is the fusion of the entire film where everything comes full circle, where every mistake of Oppenheimer's entire life comes back to bite him. And that's where the violins start to go. And the score takes on a whole new life in those last 30, 40 minutes mm-hmm. and is why, in my opinion, like it's so nightmarish as it is. If I play these, you'll get copyrighted, wouldn't you? Probably. Yeah, forget it. Then You were talking about how it all comes full circle for Oppenheimer towards the end. Same thing with Strauss. And there's a line. Exactly. I didn't get the first part of it written. Something just denying. What's the We're not convicting. That's another. Oh, my God. Just denying. We're not convicting, just denying. For both of them. Exactly. For both of them. For both of them. Full circle. Everything comes full circle. That's fusion. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just brilliant. Oh it's brilliant. I hate Nolan, bro. No, don't, don't say that. No, I'm kidding. I love Nolan. His movies, I can watch this another five times and just be like blown away every time. Like, we, right, we haven't really talked about the score that much. I, we, I guess it's hard to without like the score. I mean, my favorite scores in films are the ones where, like, I don't know how to put this into words. A lot of my love for film I can put into words and like talk about, but a lot of my love for music comes for largely from like what it makes me feel inside. And it's hard to like talk about. I, That's really interesting because you're very articulate when it comes to film, but music, you have trouble finding the words. Yeah. Like I don't, well, no, no, for like traditional, for like soundtracks, for like songs, I can say, you know, for in a rock song, I mean like, oh, the drummer for this band is so cool. I'm talking for movie scores. You know, I can talk about swells and shrills, but a lot of my love for like most movie scores, which on ironic, you know, coincidentally mostly happens to be like Hans Zimmer, you know, artists that no one's worked with, are because the scores are so emotive and 
add a layer of depth not only to the movie itself but to recurring motifs in the movie a good score is built upon not just the characters in a film but recurring motifs and plot elements and such in the film that you can attach certain let's say theme songs to and then later use all that i mean if, if, if the script is smart enough to narratively pull from different timelines and elements then why can't the score you know a good score does make no mistake does need a good script to shine but there's a difference between perfect you know and actually perfect because yesterday not only did i watch oppenheimer but i watched the 2014 gareth edwards godzilla i love both scores both scores were phenomenal watching godzilla i was like yo this goddamn score is incredible but that score is not necessarily it doesn't necessarily play on plot elements it's a good action movie score you know that score is one that while i'm watching the movie i'm gonna love it i really did love it in the moment but it's not a score that i'm really gonna go and revisit because i don't have any emotion or memory or like feeling to attach to the song when it's independent of the film i'm listening to the godzilla score independent of the film i'm gonna be like oh yeah man it's cool this sounds good i mean it makes me want to watch the movie but like i don't really care that much to listen to it outside of the film if i watched it with the film like i did yesterday yeah that it adds to the experience so much. The Oppenheimer soundtrack I listen to while I'm cooking. I listen to while I'm doing laundry. I try to start my mornings with um, Can You Hear the Music sometimes. The point I'm getting at is that since I love the movie so much, the score is really independent of the movie because I can listen to these things, these pieces of music, and attach them to elements of the film. And you know, Can You Hear the Music is a song that's so full of wonder, and then you can hear traces of this song in the track destroyer of worlds and at that point the wonder is gone because he's a destroyer of worlds you can make these songs like characters you know what i mean there's traces of can you hear the music in destroyer of worlds but destroyer of worlds is swallowing can you hear the music because the wonder is gone and now it's terrifying for oppenheimer to live this existential crisis i mean there's tracks like ground zero and trinity that speak for their own i mean they're their own thing which i mean trinity is the finale is a crazy track. I'm not gonna lie, that one I kind of skip. It's not if I'm like doing laundry. I can't listen to Trinity. <laughs> That's seven minutes of nonstop. Like, oof, it's a little scary, a little anxiety-inducing. If I need to finish something pretty quickly, then I'll listen to Trinity. But that's a brilliant uh, commentary you made on the differentiation between the scores and the use of, like, in Tenet, the scores kind of teased early on with the. Well, the Travis Scott song is used in mm. the uh, highway scene. In Trucks in Place. Yes. And oh, you even know this. Oh, the Tenet soundtrack might be Nolan's most thrilling score ever. I'm choosing my word very carefully, thrilling. I wouldn't replace that word with anything else. I think it's Nolan's most thrilling score. Let's just say I should not be legally allowed to listen to that soundtrack and operate a motor vehicle. I know. <laughs> I, like, if... Posterity or like rainy night in Tallinn, 747. If fast cars, there's literally a track called Fast Car. If I'm driving and that song is on, scat on my way. But <laughs> alerts the drivers. Yeah, I know this is about Oppenheimer, but really quick, like because a lot of what I love about, like a lot of what I just said, it makes a perfect score. A perfect score can't really be attributed to Tenet. You know, like Neil has his own theme which comes up for a little bit at the end of Posterity, which in the movie, that's when Neil shows up to take the inverted bullet. Whatever the fuck happens, inverted Neil. You know, so what I'm getting at is the same thing can be said about Oppenheimer. I just said the thing about, can you hear the music, Destroyer of Worlds, 
meeting Kitty and Kitty comes to testify both have some interesting parallels. Mm-hmm. There's tracks that, as the album progresses, I feel like I'm getting the story of Oppenheimer. You know, if I put on the Godzilla soundtrack right now and hit play from start to finish, yeah, I'm sure I'd love it. It's great music, but I probably wouldn't finish that soundtrack and be like, oh, so this is what happened in the movie. You know, in a sense, I can put on the Oppenheimer soundtrack and from start to finish be like, yeah, no, I get the story. The wonder, you know, can you hear, oh, Kitty, this. You know, it's obviously it's not the same, but mm-hmm. a good score is a perfect complement to the film. And I think one of the best things about the score is that Ludwig Goransson, I really hope I'm saying his last name right, is so young, so young. And not only he's worked on Nolan films twice, he's worked on this and Tenet, but he's worked on some pretty high profile Marvel films, credit where credit's due, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. He's done the Creed films. He's done the Mandalorian. I mean, he has an impressive repertoire. If he continues to work with Nolan, I can see him producing some legendary work. I mean, it's almost an unlikely like duo because Ludwig does kind of like his electronics too. I mean, a lot of Tenet soundtrack, while it's simultaneously not unlike something you might have expected from Hans Zimmer had he scored Tenet, there are so many elements to Tenet soundtrack that just feel brand new and energetic and youthful. There's something youthful about Tenet soundtrack that is highlighted in the special features where no one in the segment about where the score no one's like yeah obviously i would have wanted to work with hans but hans was busy with dune but hans personally recommended ludwig and said this is your guy if you're trying to do a spy film if you're trying to do like an espionage like cool sexy spy thriller you want ludwig he's going to bring a youthful energy to your film and he did and ludwig then by extension brought travis scott on board chris is like who the fuck is it but you know they ended up all working together and even to the oppenheimer score it's much more classical in its instrumental makeup than Tenet soundtrack. I need to stop talking about Tenet. I keep trying to tiptoe into Tenet. I love Tenet. We should do a whole Tenet episode. Oh, but, I've been wanting to do a whole Tenet episode. I did the research and everything, so I'm yeah, ready. Yeah, me too. So what makes the Oppenheimer soundtrack also like so unique is its juxtaposition of like classical music, but also electronics. It's easy to point to Can You Hear the Music as being the best one, and it, technically speaking, it is. But Theorists might be my personal favorite just because of the way it builds and the way these electronic synths and then the, the reprise of Can You Hear the Music comes back. And there is something very modern and digital about the Oppenheimer soundtrack, but also sounding very classical. Heavy emphasis on violins, of course. Yeah. But it's the electronics that are sprinkled throughout at just the perfect degree that I think really tie everything up in a bow. It makes it as emotive as it is. I mean, think about how well like, do you know the soundtrack? Like if I told you the name of a track. I haven't listened to the, to, I haven't been listening to more to the Interstellar score lately. Um, can you hear the music? You probably know that one. Of course, well, yeah. Right? Even in Can You Hear the Music, while technically impressive because of its building blocks of foundational, it's something so rapid and energetic and youthful sounding, and there are electronics everywhere in that song, especially towards the end. But it's built upon an escalating beats per minute rhythm of violin. I'm not as technically savvy with musical lingo as I am with film. I can name like a lot of technical film lingo, not very much musical. So anyone forgive me if I misuse a musical word. It's with good intentions, I promise. But it's something that I read that what makes the song so impressive is the fact that it changes its tempo 21 times in a minute and a half, which it does. I really wish I could play it, but I don't want to get you copyrighted. But 
It does because if you really, I mean, I mean, let, I'll just play the. You can cut this out, right? I, can play, I just want you to hear a little bit of it so mm -hmm. I you can understand a bit more of what I'm about to talk about. Pausing for copyright. Pause for copyright. Boop, boop, boop. That's a perfect like snippet to encapsulate the whole soundtrack. There's a very modern, very modern, youthful sound to this, and also very classical. You know, what I mean, if you know, right? I mean, I'm not crazy. No. There is a very old school, classic, vintage feel to the song, while also it really does sound like something that did come out in 2023. Yeah. You know, even on the special on this on the special featurette, like Ludwig had said, like had made it a point to record this entire track it would he said it would have been easy and this is something that i don't fully understand technically again because not as music savvy but from what i understand it would have been easier to record the song each tempo or something in its own snippet and then edit it together i think that was what i understood or not maybe edit it together but there was an easier way to approach it is what i'm trying to say is what ludwig was saying but he said no i really think in order to capture the spirit of this song we needed to get it in one take. He said it was like a challenge. He said it was, I can move my fingers pretty fast, but I can't like, I sometimes, I'm always tapping along to the music I'm listening to, but I cannot tap to, can you hear the music? Like, da -da 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 -da. I give up, you know what I mean? Like, and they just recorded that. They recorded that in one take. It makes perfect sense. You gotta do it for real. You don't do the green screens. You don't do the CGI like Nolan, you, you go all in. And that's why he says when you don't have CGI, there's a little bit more of a bite to the image. Mm -hmm. And you could say the same about the score. There's a little bit more of a bite without the editing and post-production work done on the score. His approach to just in-camera and in-the-moment and real filmmaking is just unparalleled. I like what you mentioned about how you can listen to the score independently from the film and you're brought back to certain motifs and scenes. I mean, when I listen to theorists and the end of theorist and theorist comes in, mm -hmm. I'm with Oppenheimer in that room. I see him talking. He has the raincoat on. He's saying, we're theorists. What we imagine, horrify. I'm there. When I listen to Kitty Comes to Testify, I'm on the gray board. I'm like, oh, Kitty, you're loyal to this country. But you know what I mean? When I listen to Destroyer of Worlds, I'm there. I'm in that B-29 bomber with Oppenheimer as he's looking at all the rockets. That, uh, is that I moment in his mind or is that, did he actually do that? I think it's in his mind I, because it's, it calls back to Borden's like, I didn't, I don't remember reading anything about that in the book. That's what I thought, but that's just something that's funny. You just mentioned that because I've always thought, okay, this is not real, right? He's not actually, he's placing. No, no, no. It's just, he's placing himself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he's seeing in Borden's memory. He just saw a single B-29 in Oppenheimer's vision. There's several B-29s. Then we see that's the globe the thing, of often, the waves. A, exactly. All the visuals in that nightmare sequence at the very end are all visuals that you've seen in the film just with different elements of the globe the, the globe waves from the, the very beginning we see the waves before the oh cattle car God, yes and then the map with the whole conference room with Strauss, modine and everyone we see the waves in that map and that first shot of the waves no one said that wasn't originally planned mm, it's not in the script the first shot the very first yeah this is the first page of the script and it's the title a vast fear of fire something bigger than the thousand suns like the first page of the script is the Prometheus text. Yeah. That's something that the editor was like, whoa, wait, hold on. Let me try this. I mean, that seems like something so natural that would be in the script. What doesn't, I mean, because yeah. it's such a perfect young Oppenheimer looking at, I mean, what an amazing, amazing 
Mm-hmm. Nolan said he just, it just kept coming through. There are certain things that you just kept repeating through the film. And that's why he put that at the beginning. We just see a few short images and then we see this fire, this title card. And yes, a lot of films would start with that title card, but what a brilliant, quick little way to give some. Even if it didn't start with the young Oppenheimer scene, the title card, there is still a couple of insert shots of the flames before the text even lights, even comes onto screen. Yes. You know what I mean? It's not like the first thing you see is the text. You hear the feet stamp, which the feet stamping motif, what an amazing, amazing, like, because you don't really even get the payoff for that until 30 minutes left in the movie, or like maybe 45 minutes left in the movie. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Crazy. And that's in the script, too. I think it even says, like, feet stamping or something. Mm -hmm. Like, no one knew that he wanted that to be a motif right away. So many visuals that are, like, the, the whole nightmare scene at the end, everything is just built. You see the same sky from Can You Hear the Music? Yes. Remember the sigh from Can You Hear the Music? Except this time, it's on fire. There's the wonder. It's gone. I mean, it's, it's horrible. You see the B-29, except this time, several B-29s instead of one. Even in you that Einstein glow. sequence, when he's talking about the possibilities, we mm-hmm. see the world engulfed in flames. We see quickly. Like, yep. Yeah, so many cool insert shots that like accompany dialogue. Like when he's talking to Chevalier about stars dying, and he's like, do stars die? And he's like, Mass says it does, and here's what would happen. And then it's like the most beautiful that nebula shot. I don't understand how they got that. Well, that's another thing I was saying about the motifs. Those quick shots of his brain with these. How would you even describe particles? Shots? Particles. Part- yeah, so like these atoms. quick shots with the particles with the score. I associate that when I listen to the score, and it's mm-hmm. and it's these quick little shots. These stunningly. Oh, what's the like requiem for a dream? It's like macro. Yeah, there are like super macro shots. Like, I don't know what macro. I mean, there are just like super macro shots. I would just say, I mean, I get the idea. Like, they are extreme close ups on, mm-hmm. on particles, on light. Then the approach to that, I mean, that's, that's something that really would be so easy to digitally create, but Nolan was like, Not Nolan. But then when you see how he did it, then you're also like, Wait a minute. That is kind of easy. That's not hard at all. I mean, technically, like it is, but the idea for it isn't. You know, I mean, Nolan just like, kill you and sleep on the bed i'm just gonna twirl this thing and we're gonna hit record i mean i'm sure to get the shot right and the exposure and the lighting was difficult but i mean just the idea for it it proves that you don't need to be a genius to get it in camera yeah you probably need good proper lighting knowledge and stuff like that but you don't need to be a fucking genius to get a shot in camera you can do it you You need a good team they showed like the you know the some of the insert shots where it's like swirling and like rippling of the dust that really was just, they took a tank with like some sand and simulated some waves and then just extreme close-up shot it. And then, you know, a lot of that definitely comes from the edit. And of course, yes, they're shooting with IMAX cameras so they can go super, because it looks like a vast sphere of lava expanding on screen because it has to for IMAX. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, they definitely have equipment to do it. But the idea is fine. I could do it right here. get some sand and put it in a fucking container right here and go grab my IMAX camera and shoot it. You know what I mean? If- Oh, yeah, just go grab your iMac. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, I'm always going to love Nolan's approach to his approach to filmmaking. He brings out the best in everybody he works with. Absolutely. Oppenheimer has been regarded as the culmination of Nolan's previous work. So what elements from his previous films did you see in Oppenheimer? I have a few. Yeah, you can start. Yeah, yeah. The idea of perspectives and paradoxes is a continuation in his films. You see it with the staircase on Inception. You see it in Tenet, the grandfather paradox. There's paradoxes mentioned in, in Oppenheimer early on when he just has the one pupil. 
And he's saying, how does it work? It doesn't seem like it does, but it can. Paradoxical, and yet it works. Yeah, different perspectives, point of view. Mm -hmm. Tenet Tenet was, I mean, we see inversion scenes. We see when they're inverted versus when they're not with the, um, the airport, the free port. We see with that. And I think even with Memento within the character, we see just different. If I remember Memento correctly, there's a different perspectives through just through just Lenny's point of view. I think so. I've, I haven't watched it in about a year. I watched it like a month ago. I don't remember Lenny seeing something differently. Oh, no. Well, not the end when he's like, my wife wasn't diabetic. And it's like a pinch the wife. He pinches her thigh. Remember? Yes. Cut back and he's injecting her. And then he cuts back and he's pinching her again. So, yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. You're right. I don't have Memento as prominent in my mind as I should. That's one I really got to do a deep. I love Memento so much. There's also, I mean, the football fields, when they're walking across the football fields and then the underground reactor with the Chicago scientists, that is like Dark Knight Rises. Come on. Yeah, it felt, but it was true. I mean, they were, they were doing this, but I know it did feel like, I was like, no, what are you doing, bro? This <laughs> like, is no, so, like, I know this football yeah. field. And I know where this is from. I mean, obviously, with Memento, you have, like, that's probably the most obvious parallel to one of his older films is finally bringing back the use of black and white. Yeah. And versus color in his films. I mean, there's a lot of, like, Nolan tendencies throughout, just narratively, of course. I mean, juxtaposing different events, non-linearity in the script writing. But I will say one thing that is very unlike some of his other films, which I love because it fits for the movie he was trying to make here, is part of what makes Nolan's film so like timeless and you can kind of, like, let's be honest, you can watch Inception and be like, yeah, this is coming out in one week from now. Like, you know what I mean? It still looks like a movie that can come out today. Not just because the effects still hold up, but because Nolan keeps time period technology out of his movies. You don't see Inception. It's 2010. iPhones were popular. Yeah. You don't really see Dom pulling out his iPhone. Even in Tenet, where it takes place in the future, and the concept is like so weird as hell it is, even the text still looks primitive. The algorithm looks like some fucking thing I can put together with those pots and pans right there. Yes. You know what I mean? Even with Interstellar, I mean, obviously it's a different story once they get into space, but like well, you see the Faust in the cornfields, and you really, even though it takes place in the future, you can still watch it. It looks like it could come out today. No one has this very, like, I don't know what word I would use to call it, but the point is he doesn't really try to emulate a time period in his films unless it calls for it, like Dunkirk and like Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer, I'm just baffled by the faithfulness to history and the faithfulness to fact and emulating the real. Los Alamos really was like a home away from home. There were schools, there were bars. It was a community chapter. I mean, I would say like this much of the book is dedicated it's like just Los Alamos. So much is. And Nolan just recreates that fantastically. He's so historically accurate. The fact that they were able to shoot in Oppenheimer's real home is astounding. I mean, how perfect. Even the, the actors saying the feature, they're like stepping into there. Like Killy Murphy is like stepping into there. Me playing Oppenheimer in Oppenheimer's house. Like I felt something. I mean, yeah. you feel something. But- There's an authenticity to it when. Yeah. You know, this is where he was. This is, this where, is where he was. Where this is where history was world. made. Exactly. The world changed this through this one experiment in this place decades ago. This is where decisions were made. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you stand by that this is his magnum opus. But magnum opus indicates that like it's like a finale, doesn't it? That's why I don't fully adapt that term associating with Oppenheimer because 
he's already said he's going to make films in 10 years from now. Yeah, like, so I don't really know. I mean, I'd say it's like, yeah, it might be his most, like, important or, like, impactful work to date, but I don't know, magnum opus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always figure that word implies, like, finality. So uh, I guess no would be your answer. Mm-hmm. In terms of Nolan's films, is this in your top three? Very tough list. I know. When I made my video on it, I think I had... Yes, everyone, as Sammy checks his video, everyone should check out his video on YouTube talking about his ranking of the Christopher Nolan films. It's an incredible video. He makes some incredible points, especially there was something about the way you described Inception that I really really stuck with me. That was... um, May I ask what? You, you said something. I, I actually quoted it in an episode with Cole. No way, really? Yeah. Wow. I thought it was brilliant. Um, but I'm not going to get to know what that line is, huh? <laughs> if I rewatch it, I'll find it. Or maybe I wrote it. I'll check my notes. Okay. I may have honestly told you right after I watched it. I don't know. I have Oppenheimer as number five on my list. All right. Followed by Interstellar and then Inception and then Memento and then The Prestige. The thing with like the top, I, I can't rank, I mean, I did rank Nolan videos, but the thing is, if I made that same video today, <laughs> ranking might be a little different. And I mentioned that a lot in that video. I'm like, listen, yes. my ranking of Nolan movies, I mean, I think Memento and Prestige will always be fighting for the top spot, though. I, I, I do think so. Memento and Prestige will always be fighting for that top spot. Wow. Oppenheimer, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I already told you kind of how I make my lists, right? Like, objectively and also kind of subjectively, my own personal, like, feelings and enjoyment. Yes, I remember the 2023 list very, very well. The only thing that's holding Oppenheimer back from being, like, a top three is that it's not... Let me just fully explain myself. It's not an entertaining movie. Yes, I watch it, and I'm freaking encapsulated by the beauty of its filmmaking, and I am appreciating every single frame of this beautiful beautiful film but i'm not like enjoying the story you know what i mean like i'm watching it and i'm like oh my god this is horrifying like this is every time it goes to that downward spiral i'm just like why did history have to go down this way like i'm not getting the same emotional thrill as watching dom like in limbo with freaking his holding maul in his hand you know, I'm not with Matthew McConaughey in the fifth dimension of a tesseract yeah. pounding on books to get to it. It's not imagine that. You know what I mean? Oppenheimer isn't fiction. It's not a work of fiction. I mean, the movie is, but you get what I'm trying to say. Like, it's hard for me to put a historical biographical movie like this over something that was born of imagination. You know, right. What's the beating heart of any film? Imagine it. Break a movie down to its tiniest element and its imagination. What makes a movie? A movie imagination you know yes no one deserves every accolade possible for reading this book and turning it into this visual art but it's not as if no one like thought of the story it was all there for him he just had to transform it into art which bravo he knocked it out of the park but it's not like with tenet you know inversion isn't real you know it's not like no one was like you know let me take this real thing called inversion and make a story out of it no no one spent 10 fucking years coming up with every beating every moving part of that film so it's hard for me to put oppenheimer over something like that i mean if i guess if i were to rank these films just based on film their approach to filmmaking and that's it then yeah oppenheimer might be a top three okay but it's just hard for me to put it over something that was born of 
either him or Jonathan or both of them, like, because Jonathan comes up with a lot of these stories too, and he, I don't feel like he gets enough credit. He came up with Memento. He came up with the bare bones idea for Interstellar. He had a lot to do with Inception. I hope they work together again. Yeah, I hope they do. I really do. Like you said, it's an impossible ranking. Whenever someone asks me, what's your favorite Nolan film? I will try and avoid that question as much as I can because, yes, I have my favorites, but some of it, like with The Dark Knight Rises, that was just so important in my life. I mean, same with Inception. Exactly. Favorite is an inherently biased question. You know, saying favorite implies, okay, well, now I have to dig into my subjective feelings. Mm -hmm. I guess that's why I put Prestige as number one because Prestige ain't got the best score in an old movie. It doesn't have the best cinematography in an old movie. It doesn't have the best actually acting, maybe. But aside, I mean, the best like trio. But you know what I mean? I laid it out in the video, but I mean, Prestige for me just feels like Nolan's soul and his own approach to filmmaking put into these characters. But this is not about the Prestige. I know. I, that would be a good episode, though, on the Prestige. Into, yeah. We could literally do a whole collection on every Nolan film, honestly. Didn't we do a Nolan episode? Wasn't we did a Nolan yeah. episode, but again, like we do have with this episode, we don't have enough time. Yeah. I would literally do an Memento episode. I would do. I want to do a Tenet episode because I did. All I would do an Interstellar episode. Give me a give me a reason to watch Interstellar. Interstellar. I've rewatched a lot of Nolan movies recently. Like by recently, I mean in the last like three four months. I've watched Memento. I've watched The Prestige, Oppenheimer. Obviously, I watched Inception, Tenet. I need to rewatch freaking Interstellar again. I'm just not emotionally prepared. I did an episode on Interstellar last year, but I want an excuse to watch it too. I mean, right. I need an excuse to watch the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, we're talking about scores and I haven't even mentioned anything about it. Funny enough, even though the Dark Knight trilogy is like my favorite piece of cinema ever put to screen, like the trilogy as a whole, I don't really talk about it that much when talking about Nolan films. I've noticed that. I don't think up until now I haven't even mentioned any of those movies once. Except when I said that I think I remember Jason Clark from Batman Begins. It's weird. I don't bring up that trilogy that much, but probably because I see it as its own like thing. It's three movies, but I see it as one. Right. You can only watch it in one sitting. You can't watch them separate days. Yeah, exactly. As we talked about, you did an episode on Christopher Nolan's films ranking, which everyone should check out on Barefoot Python Media through YouTube. I just posted my videography reel to YouTube as well. Yes, everyone go watch that too. But you also did an episode on physical media. Mm. I have my physical media of Oppenheimer. You have yours. And I mean, you even say this video will not give you the answer. But this year is very important in terms of physical media. And yes, we're early on in the, in the year. I mean, we have 11 months to go. So we don't know what's going to happen. But physical media is incredibly important. And Nolan championed it. Like you said in the last episode, it's not yours. Yeah, any streaming service could take it from you. Yes, no evil streaming service can take it from you. You have a 4K steelbook. Oh, I wish I had a steelbook. <laughs> All right, here we go again. You got the wall. <laughs> Don't get me started on the... No, I can't get him started on this. It's a whole thing. It is uh, a whole thing. I just thought about another thing that I could really get you... But I won't mention Dunkirk. Anyway. Dunkirk steelbook? No, I'm talking about IMAX. <laughs> Listen, that movie will inevitably come back for a theatrical re-release. Oh, I hope so. Well, you missed it. If I knew you in 2020, I would so told you, like, yeah, they're playing it again. And I'm... <laughs> Don't worry. This is the year of Interstellar. Remember I told you when I saw Interstellar in theaters, I was too, like, young and emotionally stupid to, like... 
like really fully grasp it. Yeah, I was too. That was 2014. What's this year? 24. Well, this movie inevitably comes back into theaters for its 10-year anniversary. I'm bringing a box of tissues, and I'm sitting in that IMAX seat. Let's manifest that IMAX stays open. If we can keep it extending. I mean, the Orange Park is the next best thing, but yeah, preferably the... The World Golf IMAX. Stay open. Stay open, please. It is incredibly important to film aficionados and regular audience. The closest IMAX would be Miami from here. Right. We need that IMAX theater, and uh, we will continue to fight for it because it might close. But yes, physical media is... Yes, physical media is incredibly important, and you own the 4K. Yeah, 4K version, uh-huh. which incredible transfer. I, mean, I don't know how many people like really care much about like 4K. But it's amazing, like, black level. I, I could go into, like, all the technical aspects. But mm-hmm. get this movie on physical no matter what. Yes. But if you have the hardware to, to run 4K discs, this is reference quality, like, for sure. I mean, especially in a lot of the scenes of fire and the Trinity test sequence as a whole when that bomb goes off. I mean, the black level, and part of it is having a good TV, of course, as well. I have a, a pretty nice TV. But, like, the black levels are beautiful. It's as if the TV's off. Like, ah, that's fire. really hard to create of, of true black. Yeah, the plumes of... It's some... I'll briefly just say, and it's, it's, the, my TV has some technology where each pixel is self-illuminating. Instead of there being, like, a backlit LED that lights the whole TV, each pixel is self-illuminating. So if there's a black scene, the pixel just won't turn on. You know what I mean? So it's nothing is there. So it's, like, this beautiful black levels, but, of course, the flames and fire... Mm-hmm. They're so bright, like to the point where they're almost blinding, and it's a great contrast. I mean, you could. My point is, no, even the black and white scenes. Forget color. The black and white scenes shot with this brand new mode of IMAX film that Nolan literally made Kodak invent, which is amazing to me. <laughs> Crazy, mm-hmm. but even that is amazing and sharp. And it's beautiful. Yeah, I get. You don't have to get it on 4K, but I'm just saying, if you care about that kind of stuff and you want like a reference quality 4K disc, yeah, this is this is one of them. But get it on whatever physical format you can, of course. Yes, and there was already headlines that, I mean, trying to get the Oppenheimer DVD, it took me a week. Mm. Something that I yeah, it's sold I, out. I have a long history of Tuesday, when the DVD comes out, I go to Target and I get the movie. I could not do that this time. I really should get a free pass I've, because of my loyalty. Mm. So it is popular. People are getting it on DVD, which is an optimistic sign. Yeah, it's restocked. Continue to support physical media and... You want to own Oppenheimer. You don't want to just have it on Peacock or whatever, wherever it's going to go. You want to have it. You can keep it. You don't have to try and follow it through streaming services. It is yours, and you can watch it with the utmost quality. Because no- Not just visually, audio, too. I mean, it's like known fact that, like, whatever, 4K or not, like, a disc quality is always better than a stream anyway. Yes. Even if your internet is as the best Verizon, Fios, one mega bazillion speed of internet, the disc is still going to look better because it's, it's physical information that's copied off of a disc instead of streaming from a cloud. I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I'm like an obsessive when it comes to like, you know, home theater setup and stuff, but I do feel like I'm attuned to this kind of setup stuff more than some people. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed, I mean, even like I have a direct Ethernet hookup to my T. I don't have Wi-Fi. Those who care know what, know what I'm talking about when I'm saying this, but I'm plugged right into my internet for my TV. I don't need to have Wi-Fi. And even then, I can tell when I'm watching a movie on streaming and it's even a perfect quality. And then I pop in a disc, the disc always looks better. The HD colors are just always more vibrant. The audio mix is always better because it's a separate audio mix. It's a Dolby audio mix. 
Granted, a lot of streaming sites have been making leaps in audio mixes lately, I've noticed, but still, that's not an excuse. Get the disc. Yes, get yeah. the disc and watch Sammy's video on YouTube about the fate of physical media. You have your website, Barefoot Python Media. How did you come up with the name, Barefoot Python Media? <laughs> I was just, like, thinking about interesting... So I was thinking about, like, some recent i think about some random names in movies that i've seen like i'm thinking about hmm, the opening credits when, when they're playing the names of some of the studios what are some of the lesser known ones like you know okay warner bros columbia pictures sure but i try to think of some indie films i've seen with like different studios and i think i had seen one called like floating driftwood or something and i was like in my head i'm like seriously it can be that stupid floating driftwood so i started there yeah, literally was thinking i was like mm. Okay, this, that, this, that, uh, barefoot, I don't know, who would be barefoot? A snake. Snakes won't even have fucking feet. Barefoot python. And then for some reason I just, like, was in the shower later that day and I'm like, barefoot python, barefoot python, barefoot python. And I just, like, it worked. It just stuck with me. I was like, you know what? Barefoot python. But then I was like, okay, it shouldn't be barefoot python videography if it's a... Anything I put on at the end of that sounded, like, clunky. Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, barefoot python studios? Like... I'm not a studio, Barefoot Python photography, but I also do videography, Barefoot Python videography, but I also do photography. So then I just said media, like media is all encompassing. It sounds good. Thank you. And then I made a logo. Yeah, the rest is history, but pff, that's how the name was born. You can go to barefootpythonmedia.com to look at Sammy's photography and some of his YouTube videos. And if you're in the Florida area, you may be able to hire him. You're so lucky. He's a great videographer, cinematographer, all that. And screenwriter, which, I mean, you won two awards for, so. Amy Wainwright Awards. Yes, yes. I'm happy that you're accepting it and you are saying it now, because it took I, a long time I, for you to be able to acknowledge that. I know. I hung up posters in my room, so whatever. I hung the things they wrote. And Barefoot Python Media, it used to be just your name on YouTube, and now it's Barefoot Python Media. Yeah, I changed it. I figured it would be more cohesive that way. Mm -hmm. Kind of link it all together, you know. Because I'm going to start putting my, like, logo in the corner of each of my video thumbnails. Like, I just want a little bit of brand cohesion, call it that. And uh, you should all check out his YouTube videos on there. As I mentioned, the Christopher Nolan video is great. He also has a short film that is on there. Um, oh, my Speak God. of the devil. Speak of the devil, yes. That one is incredibly cool. As I told you, I was reminded of Ghost Rider. Um, Damn, nice. You still got to watch it, right? Yeah, I still need to. Peter yeah, Fonda yeah, is in it. Uh, yeah. I'd... You got Nicolas Cage. I got Peter Fonda Peter in it. Peter Fonda, there we go, it. yeah. <laughs> Nick Cage. Yeah. But again, thank you for joining me for this episode. Of course. As I told you, I literally could not do this episode with anyone else. You are a fellow massive Nolan fan. And you just know the stuff. And you even, I mean, you read the book. You're almost done with the book. You've got this. I know, right? If you could see, if you guys could see, you'd just be making fun of me. I mean, bro, like, I have, I have American Prometheus. I have Oppenheimer, the official screenplay. I have the 4K Steelbook in my hands. The 4K Steelbook. <laughs> you know, that's what I have. Don't let anyone tell Projecting you otherwise. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Yeah. Where'd you get that? Uh, Best Buy? <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't say Walmart exclusive on here. Yeah. No, guys, what I have is the Icon Edition. It's just the Walmart exclusive. It sounds so sad. No, I'm not sad. It's good. It's just the 4K Steelbook. You guys know the, remember the IMAX poster for this movie, right? Like the first teaser poster we got where it's just... Your it, lock screen? Well, yeah, but they don't know that. They can't... Yeah. Yeah, exactly, guys. Talk about obsessed. It's my lock screen, too. <laughs> like, this, look at this picture. This picture would just be... Let's take a picture of, like, all this. Whew.
if the listeners of all the film things happen to follow at all the film things on Instagram, you'll see that there's going to be a picture of us with all of this. Hey, yep, all this. So yeah, you'll see there's a picture of the two books in our physical media of Oppenheimer. So yeah, check out all the film things on Instagram. Yeah, follow Elizabeth's account. Thank you for that. It's pretty solid. Yeah. And again, thank you for joining me. This was a great conversation, despite my lack of notes, I think. Todd, we've been going for... Oh, the edit. We've been going... This is almost as long as we talked for the Oscars episode. This is way longer. For the Oscars episode? No, no not the Oscars. The 2023 in film. That oh, was. why do I keep confusing? The Oscars episode is our well, next we did, episode. Yes, we did yeah. is 2023 in film. Yeah, this is longer than 2023 in film. Oh, yeah, that was only... That was like two hours, nine minutes. About as long as... Yeah, so ago. see? So look at you. You were afraid that we wouldn't have enough notes. And now I'm afraid more, for the edit. We talked more about this one film than we yeah. did about an entire year's worth of films. Well, that's the thing. It's Christopher Nolan. Exactly. What, what, no one else would talk about Nolan as much as we are. And we could go on. That's, that's my the, point. We could go on. That's my point. Is you were scared of no note. You look, you don't even need to I know. I, I don't trust my own brain with not having notes. But. Honestly, it helps that I like read all this stuff because I was able to talk a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah. But again... Thank you for joining. You made an effort to really, like, we got to get this episode done. And yeah, I, I didn't so want to miss it. it. Is there anything else that you would like to plug, recommend, mention? Anything you would like to end our episode with today? Um, I am starting a GoFundMe, oh. interestingly enough, to try to buy the 4K Steelbook of Oppenheimer. <laughs> on ebay right the problem is this shit goes for like <laughs> this shit goes for like 150 bucks now because people are greedy so listen if you're willing to help a poor soul out just you know i don't know what that laughter you're hearing in the background i don't know why she thinks i'm kidding um please i thought you were like i have a new film I'm on it. I <laughs> please i'm desperate don't listen to the laughter laughing in my pain listen uh well you asked if i had anything else to plug so you didn't let me down that's the best answer i've ever heard for that question i mean you kind of covered it you got my website you got my youtube i didn't really need to plug anything else i mean there you go actually i do have a short film cooking I can't say much about it right now. All right, but maybe a few episodes from now when we do another one. It's cooking. More information. It's cooking. What's yeah. the link on the GoFundMe? Well, for the film or for the steel book? It sounded like there's only one link. In yeah, I know. There's only one. <laughs> oh, well. Nice. What's the link? Do you have it memorized? No, I don't actually. I'm joking. I don't... Oh, I thought it was. <laughs> oh no. Obviously, I don't actually have... No, I'm just fabricate. I'm just... I just... I'm just make... It's a... It's just a joke. I don't actually have a GoFundMe for the Oppenheimer Steelbook. Oh, boy. No, it's not real. <laughs> this is all just an elaborate joke. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I haven't laughed like that in a minute. That, oh, thank you. I thought you knew it was a joke, and that's why you were laughing. No, because you looked like... Because you gave me a look. You were smiling before you said it, and you're like... She's oh, not going to believe me. She's not going to believe me. And then you said... I'm no, like, I'm oh smiling God, because serious? I was mentally committing to the joke. I was like, <laughs> uh, I was like, should I joke about this? Oh, my God. That's so funny. <laughs> I mean, if you do want to give me some money. Maybe, maybe you'll start one now. and I'll post Yeah. 
Yeah, she thought it was real. I could probably make him run, but yeah, yeah. All right, this episode's as long as Inception. Nice. Again, thank you for joining me today. Always a great guest to have on, and I look forward to our next episodes. Everyone, check out Oppenheimer, best film of the year, and it will do well at the Oscars. It will. And uh, until next time, bye, everyone. Peace out, folks. Special thanks to Sammy L. Kamel, Caitlin Fitzpatrick, Shane Kid Walker, and Helena Amador. This episode was recorded on January 21st, 2024.